Welcome back to Random Alien Brain Droppings. Today's guest is Grant Cameron. I'm sure that most of you who are listening to the show might have heard his name somewhere, as I have, but did not know Grant at all until we started exchanging emails back and forth of all things about music. And I will get that story a little bit later in the show, but right now I want to welcome Grant. Grant, how are you today? Doing fine, Suzanne, and I appreciate you having me on to uh, let me share some of what I believe and what I think is important. I think what's important is the fact that you want to share. But, you know, I've heard so many things about Grant. We always hear little headlines here and there about what people are working on in the field of ufology, whether you're an experiencer or not. And it was brought to my attention in the beginning that Grant Cameron is the UFO presidency guy. And I know that you have you have a website, which is presidentialufo.com, and you also have a blog, which is whitehouseufo.blogspot.com. And that kind of caught my eye because there aren't that many people out there who actually are going down that road and so boldly. So um, I want to know about Grant Cameron and why you decided that that was an important thing. And maybe you can share with us what led you to this in the first place. Okay. Uh, well, when it comes to the presidents, I really don't think it's very important anymore. I've sort of dropped it, even though I have the presidential UFO website. I'll tell you how I got there. I mean, my basic experience was uh, I was at university. I was, I think, 21 years old. It's 1975, right at the end of the Vietnam War. The Vietnam War is just uh, shutting down. Um, a bunch of UFO sightings start about 35 miles out of the big city. I live in a city called Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada. It's the coldest major city in the world. And um, we used to drive around the city. We used to cruise the city in a car and just drive around, do nothing. And I had no interest in UFOs that I can remember. I never really had thought about UFOs. And what happened was the sighting started. There was newspapers all the time. I told my friends, let's go out to the country instead of driving around the city. Let's go and see what everybody's looking at. And uh, we didn't go. About two months later, uh, the sightings continued, and then the local TV station managed to catch this thing jumping off the ground. They had it surrounded on the ground. It jumped off the ground, and a camera actually captured this thing jumping off the ground. Uh, it was very famous. NBC News picked it up. Then it was like all over the news. And then I said, come on, let's go. Let's, let's go see what everybody's looking at. And we went out there, and as I've often described it, it's like you buy the lottery ticket. You know there's a chance you're going to win, but you know you're not going to win. I went out there with no intention of seeing anything. I figured when we go out there, of course, there's going to be nothing there. We went out. We drove around for an hour. We didn't see anything. We were looking at stuff in the sky and saw this, saw that. And we said, well, if that's what we're looking at, it's not too impressive. My friend Larry, who I still have coffee with once a week, said to me, he said, well, we'll drive back into town. Carmen was the town. We'll drive back into Carmen one more time. 
If we don't see anything, we'll go home. I said, that's fine with me. This is a total waste of time. We're driving back into town, and I all, this is where it comes down to the whole experiencer thing. Uh, if you have not seen a UFO, you only have two things you can do. You can either believe it or disbelieve it. You cannot know. When this thing appeared, it appeared from the left, going to the right, very low to the ground, very close, um, very slow, bobbing up and down, pulsing red. When we first saw this thing appear from the left, nobody said, is that what they're looking at? Is that what everybody's talking about? Everybody instantly yelled out, there it is. Wow. We instantly knew that this is what everybody was talking about. It was the most dramatic thing I'd ever seen in my life. I went two nights later. I grabbed all my friends. I said, you got to come out and see this thing. It'll change your life. It's just unbelievable. I just sort of like could, couldn't get enough of this. Dragged all my friends out there two nights later. An hour later, they said, ah, Cameron, uh, we're, we're going home. We've had it. We, we're not going to stay anymore. I said, no, no, you got to see this. Wait, wait. It's still going to come. I'm, it'll probably come. Just hang on. No. They, uh, they said, no, we're, we're hungry. We're going back to Winnipeg for pizza. All my <laughs> best friends and whatever took off and they were gone. 15 minutes later, it came directly at us. It was bouncing around the sky. Then it came directly at us, got in fairly close. It sort of hesitated, sat there, and then it moved sort of in a northeasterly direction. Okay, I fall off the edge of the earth. I figure this is the biggest story ever. I go and I start to interview all the people in the town. I do a poll at the high school that says 59% of the kids in the high school have seen this thing. This is like a lot of people. So I, I basically do the manuscript. I figure, here we go. This is a big story. What year was this? 1975. Okay. Uh, my sighting took, my first sighting took place in May of 1975. The Vietnam War ended at the end of April 1975. And I think the two are connected. Mm. But anyway. I, I write the manuscript. Uh, nobody will publish it. The local publisher who should have published it because it was a big story where I lived said, Mr. Cameron, you may believe in this kind of stuff. Count me among the unbelievers. And at that point, I said, this is a total waste of time. I wrote at the beginning of the book. I put a little thing. It said, Sight UFO sightings are things you can tell your children, interesting stories that you can tell your children when you grow old and gray, but they prove nothing. And I gave the manuscript to my sister. I said, this total, uh, forget it. And I forgot about the story for probably 30 years and I decided that um, all I was interested at that point was finding out what I'd seen I wasn't interested in seeing any more UFOs I wasn't interested in hearing anybody else's UFO stories all I wanted to know is what did I see the one of the people that had had a sighting came out of my father's office my father was an aviation official with the Canadian government he inspected runways and air, airports around the, the north up in the Arctic there was a guy who was a radar tech there who had had a sighting I interviewed him, nothing spectacular, and he said, you know, if you really want to know what's going on with UFOs, you should study what the Canadian government was doing back in the 1950s. And I said, oh, really? And he said, yeah, from 1950 to 1954, I was involved. I worked for Wilbert Smith, who was the guy who ran it. Mm. And he was the most brilliant guy I've ever met, but he was totally crazy. He was talking to aliens that were landing in his backyard, and I said, they were what? <laughs> I said, this is the guy that ran the Canadian government program? And he said, yeah. He said, you got to, and then he told me about, they had this flying saucer observatory, and uh, this thing flew over, and the bells were going off, and all this sort of stuff. And I went, wow. So still a young kid, I, I that was my next mission. I grabbed a, an airplane ticket. I flew to Ottawa, and Wilbur Smith had died by then. His wife was still alive. She was secretary to the Speaker of the Senate. I went to his wife, and I wanted to see what, what's the story, what what happened. And it was to me, it was like sitting in in the twilight zone. I mean, it was just unbelievable. She was just talking about the, this alien as if it had lived in the house. It was like wow. I just I was just couldn't get enough of this. So what I did is I gathered all his material, everything I could, and I managed, I think, to collect all the material, all his personal files, all the government files from the Canadian government investigation from 1950 to 1954. 
The main document in that uh, whole collection is what we call the Top Secret Memo. It's a top secret memo that Wilbur Smith wrote in November of 1950. In that top secret memo, what happened was Wilbur Smith had an idea that the UFOs, uh, they could develop a propulsion system that the, the UFOs were using. And at that time, they called them flying saucers. The flying saucers were using the Earth's magnetic field for propulsion and that they should do a project and they should develop this technology and they would have this energy source. So they go down to the United States and through the Canadian Embassy in Washington, D.C., uh, they start asking questions through the military liaison. Uh, the information comes back. It's it's collated, put into this document, and it's called the Top Secret Memo. And it was written in November 1950, and Wilbur Smith writes, We learn from American officials, not people on the street, American officials. Number one, flying saucers exist. Number two, it's the most highly classified subject in the United States, rated higher than the H-bomb. And the, and the H-bomb, the hydrogen bomb, would not be detonated till May of 1952, two years later. The third thing that was on this top-secret memo said, there's a small group headed by Dr. Vannevar Bush. And Vannevar Bush was the uh, science advisor to President Roosevelt. He was the guy in charge of the atomic bomb, the proximity fuse, plastic explosives, jet engine, homing torpedo, all the inventions during World War II. He was the scientist in charge of the scientific side to that said he's running the program, trying to find the modus operandi, how these flying saucers are propelled. The fourth thing on the document said, we have we have been informed that it is of tremendous significance to the Americans. The fifth thing, and this is what got me going later, was the fifth thing said, we've also been told by American officials that other things might be associated with the flying saucers, such as mental phenomena. Hmm. That sealed it for me that this is for real. We started to look in the United States as to where this information had come from, who had provided this to the Canadians. We come across one guy, his name was Dr. Robert Saubacher, who was a military advisor in Washington, D.C., who admitted, yes, he was one of the people that was interviewed, and he talked about this, and we we asked him what had happened. He had said that there had been a, uh, a briefing that had taken place at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base in 1950. He had been invited to go. We had to deal with the crash flying saucer and the bodies. He couldn't go. But he had been in a Navy office in Washington, D.C., and he'd listened to the people coming back, the scientists, and they were telling stories about what they had happened at this at this briefing. So Stanton Friedman, who was interviewing him, said, well, can you tell me who was there? And he mentioned Von Braun, Bush, Von Neumann, the guy that invented the computer, all these different people, but they're all dead. Stanton said, is there anybody that still might be alive? He said, well, there was this one guy. He was from Pennsylvania. He was very arrogant. He thought he knew everything. He went to all the meetings. We find out it's Dr. Eric Walker. It's confirmed to us by Dr. Robert Saubacher, and we now go after Dr. Eric Walker, who was the former president of Penn State University. A doctor's degree in electrical engineering, 14 honorary doctorate degrees, chairman of the board of the Institute for Defense Analysis, the biggest military think tank for the U.S. Defense Department, friends with Eisenhower, very, very powerful guy. We talked to him. Ask him whether he was at the meetings. He said, I was there. Why do you want to know about that? And we start an eight-year back and forth, different researchers from around the world trying to get this guy to talk. He says, I don't talk about this. You know, I go to study something else. You're up against the windmills unless you have the mind of Einstein. You're wasting your time. We do this. He dies. I go after his files. His files are supposed to be at the Truman Library, and he's friends with, with Eisenhower. And it's at that point I get involved with the president's. I go to the libraries and I try to find out what documents have they got on Walker. They really didn't have anything. And it's at that point I ask the question, 
what is the most powerful man in the world know about the most important subject in the world? And it was at that point I started to ask in the Truman and the Eisenhower Library, what documents do you have on UFOs? And basically the end, the short story is they really don't have any documents because mm-hmm. it's not really something that is really dealt with. It's done orally, as was detailed by Truman's air advisor, who said all the briefings were done orally. So there really was no documents. And I spent about 15 years. I put all the material on the various presidents that have had sightings, the various uh, opinions. And, of course, my 15 seconds of fame was I got to talk to uh, Vice President Dick Cheney, who is Mr. Power, Mr. Military Guy, and I got to ask him the question. So i done the presidents, but I've gone on to other things since the presidents. And what did Cheney have to say? Uh, what I had learned is when you get a high-level official, uh, whether it's a vice president, a president, or the the level where they get briefed, which is a four-star general of the unified command, what you want is you don't want to ask them about what they think about UFOs. You could care less. You don't want to know about if they've had a sighting. The only question you want to ask them is what I call the briefing question. The briefing is the truth. If somebody is briefed, they are told the truth. Someone walks in your office, you sign a security oath saying that you're sworn to secrecy, and they will brief you and tell you what U.S. intelligence knows about the subject. So I asked him the briefing question. I said, Mr. Cheney, in all your jobs in government, and he was uh, chief of staff for the Ford administration. He was Secretary of Defense under Bush Sr., and when I was talking to him, he was the vice president. He was actually in the White House when I talked to him. I said, in all your jobs in government, have you ever been briefed on the subject of UFOs? If so, when was it and what were you told? He hesitated and he said, if I had been briefed on that subject, it would probably be classified and I wouldn't be talking about it. Wow. So then why did you decide to step away from that? I mean, it seems very fascinating. We all we all know that the current president doesn't actually have the need to know and, and maybe we're, we're not even we're barking up the wrong tree, you know, in that respect. Well, I, I would sort of, I've changed my mind. I, I really? can deal with that. I, I do believe the presidents do know. Uh, and I'll tell you, uh, why. I think it's just basically classified. This whole thing is military. Uh, you take a look at the technology that's involved. The, en- the energy that's involved is going to make nuclear energy look like matchsticks. Uh, you talk about the mental phenomena. You talk about uh, a craft that can fly anywhere and nobody can shoot it down. You can, uh, uh, I mean, if you're Iranian, you can come to the United States, abduct the president of the United States, put ideas in his head, and be back in Baghdad for lunch. I mean, this kind of technology is unbelievable. This is what it's all about. And um, I've gone back and forth over the years whether the president knows, whether the president doesn't know. And Barack Obama was actually the guy that convinced me that the president has to know. And I wrote an article, and it's actually on my website. If people go to my website, presidentialufo.com, what does the president actually know? And I talk about the fact that this is constitutionally the president has to know. He is the head of state, which means any negotiations with a foreign country, it has to be done by the president. You cannot have a GS-13 negotiating a peace treaty with the Russians. The president has to be there. So if anybody is interacting with aliens, they're a foreign power. And the president has to be involved. Constitutionally, it has to happen. He's the head of the civilian head of the military. So if the cover-up is in the military, he's at the top of that chain. If it's intelligence, all 16 intelligence agencies have only one job, and that is to report to what they call the people at 60,000 feet. That's the president, the executive branch, the uh, intelligence committee chairman, and to the Joint Chiefs of Staff. So if he, if it's an intelligence operation, he's at the top. All the intelligence reports to him, he has to know there. And so for, for these constitutional reasons, I thought 
already I had problems because if the president doesn't know, you would have defections. You would say, somebody like Snowden would say, I've had it with this. I'm going to the documents. I'm getting out of here. I'm going to release this thing. I, everybody has played the game from Roosevelt all the way through Obama. And they, nobody is defected. You have had no major defections, which indicates to me there are rules and regulations and people, patriotic Americans are following the rules. And Walker at one, one point got very angry. We were talking to him and he cut it off and he said, look, let me ask you a question. Why should I, why should we change the rules to satisfy your curiosity? And when he said this and he said it off the cuff, it made me think there has to be rules. Otherwise mm -hmm. people are going to defect. But Obama was the one that gave it away. Obama's been contacted a number of times. And the way presidents handle the UFO thing is they make a joke. So Obama was contacted by, I think it was a Chicago TV guy. And he was asked, Mr. President, or when he was running, he said, Senator, if you become president, you find out that extraterrestrials actually do exist, are you going to tell the people? And he said, well, it depends whether they're Republicans or Democrats. Uh -huh. So the, the big joke. So he, he gets out of it. Then he was asked this famous one when at this Democratic Philadelphia debate where Kucinich gets asked the question and gets blown out of the, the campaign with Shirley MacLaine outing him for having seen the UFO and getting the message in his head. Uh, they went to Obama very next and said, well, what do you think about life in outer space? And the way he walks around the question then is he said, well, I don't know about life in outer space. There may be other people coming here. What I do know is that there are people who are starving, and he went through his whole, mm -hmm. you know, his, his whole platform. But when he gets in, then, of course, he's going to get the briefing. Then he's going to get the intelligence briefing. They're going to sit down. And then suddenly it's his intelligence cover-up. It's his CIA. It's his thing. And everybody wants to go down to history as the guy, you know, that, that didn't sort of, uh, you know, blow up the world or do whatever. So they suddenly become very re reticent. The president doesn't leak anything. I mean, he doesn't say, you know, that leader that died there. Yeah, it was actually us. We killed the guy. I mean, they, they're, they're secret about everything. They don't mm -hmm. talk about anything because it's his intelligence operations. It's suddenly uh, somebody sits down and explains it to him and he goes, oh, that's okay. You know, because everybody, if you take a look at um, Ford, who was very adamant before he became president, he was furious. He said, not only should we have a congressional investigation, we should put people out in their subpoena and force them to testify. Jimmy Carter said that he would release everything. So once they get in, then suddenly they start playing the other game, which indicates to me that there's something that tells them once they get in that says, well, okay, I understand now. Okay, I'll play along and we're going to cover it up. They've all covered it up. But when Obama gets in, he starts making these what I call, I, I sent a message through to Shirley MacLaine that he seems to be going to the edge a number of times. He gets right to the edge as if he's playing with the issue, and it's in a joke. But sooner or later, some reporter is going to actually question him, like, what the heck are you talking about? And here's, here's these incidents that happen. This is 2012. He goes to, he's campaigning for the second term. He goes to Roswell, New Mexico, and doesn't matter who's, what president goes to Roswell, New Mexico, you always got to make a UFO joke. So Obama, Obama's joke is this. He said, the question that's asked to me most by nine and 10 year old kids is, Mr. President, what about Roswell? Is it true what they say? And then Obama says, and I look at the little kids and I tell them, if I told you that, I'd have to kill you. And he says, and he says, you can see their eyes get all big. And, and of course, everybody laughs. This is his opening joke. And then he hesitates. And this is what made me say, this guy knows. He hesitates. I've seen enough presidential speeches. I looked at all the presidential speeches, how they get written, how they get drafted, how stuff gets in and out. And this was not in the speech. He ad-libs this. He does the joke. Then he's going into the speech. And he, just before he goes into the speech, he says, we'll keep our secrets here. And when he said that, I realized, 
he's playing with the issue, he's been briefed, and he has decided to keep the secrets. Roswell, what secrets? What secrets are you talking about? Nobody picked it up. He said, we'll keep our secrets here. And if Obama knows, he's the most left-wing president that's ever come down the pike. If Obama knows, they all know. They've all been told. And that makes sense because there's been no defections. Then he has the, the incident that he has um, with um, Will Smith. Will Smith from Men in Black. When the, the, other, the latest movie came out, Men in Black movie, he gets an offer to go to the White House and get a tour of the White House. And Jaden Smith, who's Will Smith's son, who's 13 years old at the time, is a real conspiracy guy. He believes all the conspiracies and the UFOs, and he's, he's into the whole thing. And, he's, and he finds out that they're going to the White House, and he said, he said, Dad, I want to ask Obama about the aliens. And Will Smith said, no, you're not going to ask the, the president about the, the, the aliens. You're not going to embarrass me. Just keep quiet. Don't say nothing. And he said, no, but that I want. He said, no, you're not going to ask about the aliens. So they get into the White House. They're doing the tour. Obama's taking them on the tour. And Obama gets to the Situation Room. Situation Room is where they sat and watched Ben Laden get killed. This is the center of power in the White House. So they're in the Situation Room. And uh, Jaden looks up at his father and he says to his father, Dad, what's my punishment again? And, and Will looks down and says, no, don't ask. And Obama picks it up before the question is asked. He said, to Jaden, he says, I know what you want to ask about. You want to ask about the aliens. And, and Jaden goes, yeah, yeah, I want to know about the aliens. And Obama says, I can neither confirm nor deny that extraterrestrials have visited the Earth. But if they had, and if there had been a top secret meeting, it would have taken place in this very room. And Jaden goes, yeah, I knew it, I knew it. He's all excited. <laughs> and Jaden has made this public on his uh, Facebook and stuff like that. And Will went on BBC and told this story. So here's a second incident where he basically goes to the edge. He plays with the issue. Risking the fact that some media guy is going to say, Mr. President, is this for real? I mean, is this what's going on? The last one he did was actually just broadcast on New Year's Eve. He's at he's giving awards uh, at the Kennedy Center. And one of the people is getting an award is Shirley MacLaine. So he he does this. He does this joke. And it's the old Area 51 joke. And he said, um, the question that's asked most to me by people when I became president is what's the deal with Area 51? Is it true? Do they have aliens there? And he said, I really didn't know, so I had to phone up Shirley McLean and find out. And Shirley, I got back from Shirley. She thought it was really great. She thought, well, this is great, you know, that he made this, this joke. So here's this guy who goes to the edge all the time that's, that, that if there was nothing to it, he, he wouldn't be playing this issue. He's playing with it like he's interested. He's into the sci-fi stuff. He's in. The same as, Brock, as, as Bill Clinton. Mm-hmm. When, when I lectured in Arkansas, I was told by the woman whose sister owned the big barbecue restaurant that the Clintons used to hang out with when they were when they were teenagers. She told me that she was she was convinced that either the Clintons or somebody very Clint, close to the Clintons had had a UFO sighting. And when I tried to get her, she I gave her my business card. She was supposed to contact. She was going to find out from her sister who knew for sure. She never got back to me. But the Clintons talked about it numerous times, I think 26 or 27 times. Bill and Hillary Clinton talked about UFOs. They were talking about them all the time. And they were playing on this edge because they were very interested, which we know for a fact that the Clintons were interested because Paul Davies, who did the, the Roswell movie, actually had a couple of encounters with the Clintons. And in the one, he actually got face-to-face with Bill gave him the latest Roswell book by by uh, Kerry and, and Schmidt. And uh, he said, uh, Bill looked at the book and he said, you know, I'm fascinated in this kind of stuff and I'm going to read this book right away. So here's the, this, the, you get the presidents who are interested, but because of the military technology that's involved, it's basically classified like everything else. So they just basically don't talk about it. Right. Well, you know, it's, 
one of those things where we hear this and everyone alludes to, like you were just saying, that, you know, it might be. But at the end of the day, we talk about disclosure and my opinion, I don't know if you agree or not, but based on my own personal experience and the things that I've learned from other experiencers, I really don't think that disclosure is going to come from them. I think that it's going to come um, when they make their presence known, if, if you know what I mean. Yeah, I, I have the two opinions. I, I wrote a book which was called uh, UFOs, Area 51, and Government Informants, which came out last year. And in there I talk about um, the government's uh, gradual disclosure plan, that the government has, uh, I believe, leaked the core story. They want you to know that, that ETs are here. They want you to know there's stuff at Area 51. They want you to know there was a live alien. They want you to know that there's an MJ-12 group. But in, ter- in terms of the actual confirmation of that, you have to keep the cover-up going because you're protecting the military stuff because you don't want to give the technology to Al-Qaeda and China and, uh, you know, so you protect the whole thing, but you, you don't want people back in 1947. But I agree with you, and this is the latest lecture that I did, is I do believe thoroughly that there is an alien disclosure plan and there is absolutely nothing the government can do. But in fact, I think the government's helping them do it, that the aliens are disclosing this thing and we are sitting like somebody watching the pages of a book being turned, and the aliens are going from step to step to step. Because if you look in history, what happened today did not happen 50 years ago. I've been in this thing so long that I know it's a completely different world, and I know the patterns, that the aliens are leading us from one pattern to another to another, and we can sort of go into some of that, and then we get into the thing about the music. Right, and and so I want to actually quote you on something that you said at your lecture in Phoenix Okay. Okay. You proposed that much of what has happened in the UFO field over the last 110 years may be nothing more than an illusion presented to us to raise our consciousness about the fact that we are not alone in the universe, that we have environmental problems, and that love and oneness are the key elements of the universe. Now, that's a pretty direct statement. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. What what yeah. was it exactly that led you to that conclusion? Why would you say that? I mean, is this something that you've collectively felt from other people's testimonies, such as experiencers and contactees, or this um, just a feeling I've, that you have? No, I've always had this feeling. I've always known deep down that that things are changing, that it's not the same. And that with the examples I showed in in Phoenix, where, for example, 1894, 96, 97, you had all these uh, UFOs over the Midwest and the western part of the United States. And they were sort of like uh, wooden blimp-type ships with lights on them, big propellers and stuff. And I said, when was the last time we had a sighting like that? Mm. 1897. Foo Fighters. My father was a, was a pilot with the Royal, Royal Canadian Air Force in Canada. His boss um, was, had a Foo Fighter sighting. Uh, when was the last Foo Fighter sighting we had? Mm. 19, 1945. There's been no Foo Fighter setting since then. Uh, after the World War II, we had, um, when we were building the atomic bomb over Los Alamos, where they were building the bomb, over Hanford, all these places where they were finding the uranium and stuff, we had what were called green fireball sightings. So all these green fireballs were there. When was the last time we had a green fireball sighting? Probably uh, 1949. Came and it went. 1950s, we had... Uh, uh, sightings of angel hair. Most people today wouldn't even know what angel hair is. It was big back in the 1950s. 1960s, we have the beginning of the cattle mutilation. People think this went on forever. Cattle mutilation started in 1967. They were very heavy in the in the 70s, the early 80s, and now it's like they've basically gone away. 
In the 1960s, 70s, we had ground traces. I remember in 1975 when I was doing the, the stuff around Carmen, I had about tw- maybe a dozen ground traces where the, the, the vegetation would be all burned out. There'd be tripod marks. I have confirmed it with Ted Phillips, who controls the 4,000 ground traces. Basically, this does not happen anymore. The only time you're going to get a ground trace is you're going to get a burn circle, and it's going to happen in the backyard of a contactee, whether it's Chris Bledsoe or whether it's uh, uh, Romanek. This is when you have it. But the, the, the idea of pod marks, these you know burnt-out stuff with p- tripod marks, doesn't happen anymore. Same thing. In 1970s, you had, and this is kind of weird. In the 1970s, I play a number of clips of people who saw flying saucers with windows and people looking out the windows. Mm. Betty, Betty and Barney Hill. Barney talks about with the binoculars. I'm looking, I'm looking through the binoculars and they're looking out the windows. The aliens are, they're looking out the windows. He reports this. Doesn't happen anymore. Nobody anymore sees flying saucers with windows and little aliens looking out the windows. This is something that happened in the 60s, 70s, 80s. In the 70s, cars were stalled out. Now I, I talked to one, uh, a contactee out of Las, uh, Las Vegas, uh, Betsy Platt. Betsy Platt tells a story of a, of a UFO on her car. Not above her car, on the car. It was touching the car. She could roll down the window, put her hand out, and touch the thing. It was on top of the car for 20 minutes. Car mm. did not stall. The idea of car stalling doesn't happen anymore. I bring up the example in the lecture. Why do UFOs have lights on them? Right. We don't need lights. The only reason we have lights on our planes is for navigation and, and for uh, safety purposes. We don't need lights. Why would the UFOs have lights on it? They have lights so we can see them. That's right. If, I was if, just if, if, that. If, if they want to abduct people, which they do, nobody sees them abducting people. If they want, they can turn the lights out and nobody knows they're there. So when they have the lights out, they don't, they don't want people to see them. But when they have the lights on, then they want you to see. And I go through a, I go through a number of experiences. I, I talk about two particular ones. Bud Hopkins, who started in 1975, sort of a preeminent, started all famous for all the abduction research. You listen to his 1964 sighting. I play this thing. This is clearly a contactee explaining a sighting. The thing sitting there, broad daylight, clear as day, flying saucers sitting there, him and two other people. They're looking at it. It's just sitting there. They're looking at it. It's sitting there. It's not moving. It's not doing anything. And they sit there for what he thinks is three to four minutes, driving along, watching this thing. And then, poof, it just disappears. Suddenly, he gets all inspired. He's doing this UFO stuff and stuff like that. And that's what I'm saying is these triggering elements that people are triggered. You don't actually come in. You're pulled. The aliens are running the show. And if you've seen a UFO, I start to believe very clearly that you've been dragged in. You don't see UFOs by accident. And I remember seeing my first, my second UFO, yeah. not the first one, but the second one. I remember it came directly at us and sort of hesitated and it sort of flew off. And I can still... The feeling is clear to this day. I was watching it fly away, and I'm thinking, that, that could be extraterrestrials from another planet. But what are they doing? This doesn't make any sense. They're just they're just flying along there. We didn't seem to be going anywhere or doing anything. And that stuck with me. Like, why was that thing there? And I started to think, well, maybe it was just there so I could see it. And they wanted to trigger me to go on. And the final example I use is a dramatic example. This is the guy who runs MUFON now, Jan Hartson. Jan Hartson tells a story. He's nine years old, and this comes down. Are UFO sightings accidental? He's He and his brother are interested in UFOs. They read his father has magazines, these men's magazines. They have UFO articles, and they're reading them and stuff. And they say, oh, we want to build a flying saucer, and we're going to have three engines in it and stuff like this. They go to the store with the mother. The mother buys this UFO magazine. They're reading this UFO magazine, and in the UFO magazine it says, UFOs are usually seen around 
uh, nuclear plants and around people who are doing anti-gravity research. And they go, wow, we're doing anti-gravity research. <laughs> Maybe they'll come visit us. And he said, not even a month later, he said, suddenly his brother comes into his, his room, 6, 6, 6.30, Saturday morning, bangs on his room, says, somebody's trying to get the screen off the window. Someone's trying to get into my into my um, my room. And he said, oh, you know, why? His brother's always playing around. So finally his brother convinced him, no, come on, come on. And they go and they can't see anything in the window. They're going down the hall. His brother sees them at the window again. They go out in the backyard, and as Jan Hartson describes, there is a flying saucer, clear as day, sitting there, 30 feet away. And it's just sitting there. And they're looking at this thing, and it's it's just sitting there. And so Jan decides, I'm going to take a picture of this thing. He tries to get in the house. The door is locked. He finally, 10 minutes later, his brother, his third brother comes to the door, gets the uh, opens it up, runs in, gets the camera, comes back out, and the thing is flown away. And Jen says quite clearly that he believes that this was a triggering event because mm-hmm. one of his friends had said, well, that was my friend. My father's in aerospace and, um, you know, they were, they were testing. And Jen said, well, why were they testing in my backyard at 6.30 on Saturday morning? And that's the critical question. How, do, how does the flying saucer get into Jan Hartson's backyard at 6.30 on Saturday and totally motivate him? He said his whole life was motivated by that sighting. Became an engineer, worked on UFO propulsion, now runs MUFON. So you start looking at this whole thing that a lot of what you see in ufology is all orchestrated by the aliens. It's like we're holding the hand of whoever it is. We're walking down this path through the bush and we're following these little breadcrumbs and we're picking up the breadcrumbs. We really don't know for sure what's going be at the other end but when it comes to the other end i've seen all these sort of things and that's where i say the experiencers are the critically important people that's why i gave up on ufos and people even ask me now they said oh there's have you seen ufos since you got to arizona i said i could care less i the the last thing i want to do is see a ufo all i'm interested in is contactees it doesn't matter you can count all you want you can uh in the sky how many red ones how many green ones how many fast ones how many slow ones Jim Dalatosa, who was here in, in Phoenix, he used to do all the analysis, photographic analysis and stuff. He gave up on that. He said the only thing clear is, is to look at is contactees. And he said it's like standing up on the top of a building and watching little things moving around uh, on the, on the road below you. It's not until you take the elevator down, run out in front of one of them, flag it down like Travis Walton did, get taken inside or talk to somebody who's been inside the craft. Can you start to understand what's going on? The contactees are the critical element. That's the only way we're going to find out what's going on. You cannot determine what's going on by counting how many different types of flying saucers there are or where they're seen or whatever. You've got to get to the people who are interacting with the phenomenon. Right, right. I, I wanted to say something about something you just said. We were talking about um, the, I want to say the evolution maybe of the experience itself because uh, you know, the Foo Fighters, the, the fiery green balls, what have you, just all the things seem to change from generation to generation. And, yeah. and th- that being said, who's to say that, um, they aren't evolving as well? Um, you know, or maybe we need to see something different because we're so skeptical. And so they're creating something that we might be able to say, okay, well, that makes sense because we're in, you know, the year 2014 now. So we would expect to see something a little bit more, uh, yeah. engineered, oh, yeah. you know what I'm saying? But yeah. what I wanted to say is that, uh, my very first experience, contact experience was in 1966. And for whatever reason, and I don't really remember why I had the experiences when I did until I was in my twenties. But at the time as a child, when I was about nine years old, I said to my mother to take me to the library because I wanted to check a book out on electromagnetics. 
And she, and I, I'm this little nine year old kid, you know, just playing in the yard, had my Barbie dolls, what have you. And she just looked at me and thought, what the hell is going on? So, so maybe this is something from one of my experiences that just stuck with me, or maybe I wanted to learn about, you know, how these things were flying, you know, subconsciously. Yeah, or they had you very, very early. I always say this ties into music as well. I talk about if if you're older, they're not about to go out and try to convince um, academics and universities to change their opinion. They basically abduct kids when they're in the in the crib mm-hmm. because their minds are open. That's when you start working with them. That's why they go after music and try to influence the music because you're dealing with kids whose minds are open from 12 to 20 years old. Uh, you know, people who, uh, girls who change their, their style every six months, change their cell phone every year that are defiant of their parents that want new ideas are going to believe anything except what the, the establishment says. That's, that's where they're sort of working from. So that's what I would say is that they, they've influenced people and the, the abductees are a key part. Because one of the examples I bring up in my lecture is I say, take a look at abduction experiences themselves or contact experience, whatever you want. Uh, uh, Hopkins and Jacobs both maintain, and I won't dispute their, I haven't seen the evidence, but I won't dispute their evidence, that uh, abductions go back to 1900. And the general idea is, well, you know, the way of abduction stuff works, it's sort of like, uh, you know, the aliens don't do things quite right. They put people's clothes on backwards, put people in the wrong cars, all this sort of stuff. And what happens with abduction people is, you know, that they, they have the abduction and then the amnesia sort of starts to wear off and, uh, you know, they suddenly have big bad dreams and, and they go for help and that's how it comes out. If that were the case, if it is like just bad technology by the aliens, the people that would be having these flashbacks would be from 1900 to 1966. Why did nobody from 1900 to 1966, when the Betty and Barney Hill book came out, why did they not remember anything? Because I say they're being triggered. In 1961, all these people, like like uh, uh, Leo Sprinkle had an abduction in 1940, didn't remember till many years later. Colin Anders had an abduction experience in 1957, didn't realize till 1997. In 1961, they said, okay time for people to start to put this part of the the plan in order so they say okay betty and barney hill turn them on get make them have bad dreams and one of there's a lot of examples that show exactly this is what's going on you remember the the uh allagash i don't know mm-hmm. if you've had them on your show the allagash uh, i've met four. them personally yes i spoke okay. with them actually last year in maine and if you take a look at their experience here's these guys 1976 the year after i had my experience they have this thing they have no idea they've been abducted they have no idea there's time, there's a time warp or whatever that they've lost time, whatever. All they think is they sort of outran this thing, that it was there, this object was coming, and they were paddling, and they got to the other thing, and the fire was kind of weird. The fire was down, but they didn't think they'd been abducted. They just remembered this bizarre UFO chasing them across the lake. Exactly, exactly 12 years later, two of them start having bad dreams. Now, what's the chances that exactly 12 years later, two of them are going to start having bad dreams? The one is in the hospital, and mm-hmm. coincidentally, someone brings him a book to read mm. in the hospital to keep him amused. And, of course, what book is it? Communion. communion right. That triggered so right. many people. So many right. people will say they saw communion and they knew they'd been abducted. They, n- nothing more need to be say. And so you have this, this triggering thing where it looks very much like people are being triggered. And the, one of the best examples is I play this clip. I play this clip of Barbara Lamp who's done 2,300 regressions or whatever it is, huge number of regressions, Her, how she got involved in the UFO subject. She had no interest in UFOs, did nothing about UFOs, no interest in it. She's a family therapist, starts in 1975. 
from 1975 to 1988. She goes to a regression training session in 1988. She's in the regression training session. It's the very final level. And the woman says, you know, when you're doing your practice from time to time, you may have this little weird experience. You may come up against people when you've got them under regression who are going to say that they were abducted by little gray people. And Barbara says to herself, that's weird. I've never heard of that before. That's very strange. And at the in the back of her head, she says she hears this booming voice say, Get ready, Barbara. Listen carefully. You're going to be doing this. Wow. And to, when I hear that, that is the alien saying, Get ready, Barbara. We're about to send you some people. And that's what they're doing. They're triggering people. They're turning them on. Even uh, Carla Turner in the 1990s who talked about this whole thing, the aliens were evil and it was all secret and the aliens lie and all this stuff. If you hear her, her statement about how it started, she talks about how she put her husband under regression and trying to teach himself hypnosis and he suddenly went into, into uh, um deep hypnosis and she said find out what the, what's the cause of your dilemma and he suddenly sees these aliens with the big eyes and stuff like that and the aliens are taking a scoop out of his leg and they say it is now time for you to remember to talk and so here's she's telling one story in public she's saying well they're all secret but no it's not the aliens are telling lots of people chris bledsoe one of the most famous contactees bizarre bizarre story talks about the fact under regression, when he has his regression in 2008, he's talking about this promise, this promise, this promise. And um, Dr. Michael O'Connor, who's a, an associate of John Mack, who's doing the regression, says to him, says, what are you talking about promise? What, what is it? Ask the aliens. What, what's this all about? And he said, they have been with me since before I was born. Mm-hmm. And, and the promise was mm-hmm. to tell the message. So he tells the message. And it all falls apart. He, he tells it. He, he pushes the button. He gets MUFON to investigate. They do it. Discovery picks it up. His whole life falls apart. His kid pulls out of school. He lives in a very religious community. And he stops talking. And then in 2012, the same day, I have a bizarre experience. The same day, he gets pulled by what he calls the Shining Lady. The aliens take him to the Shining Lady. And the Shining Lady says to him, Chris, you have a burden. And it is yours to carry I said, Chris, do you know what the burden is? He says, yes, I know what the burden is. I said, what is it? He said, it is the message. I was told I have to tell the message. So he doesn't talk about it for three three or four years. They pull him. It's like being taken to the principal. You get a reminder here. You're to tell the message. So there's a lot of contactees who, even though they may not know what it is, a lot of them will say, I'm in training. I don't know what's going to go on. And then when they get mad, they ask the aliens. And the aliens say, when the time is right, you will know what to do. So there are people who are, who are going to be triggered that this is all orchestrated by the aliens. And then you see the stories of the of the military being involved. There's so many. The Colin Andrews story, 1957, the military regarding the flying saucer when he went into the flying saucer. So you have these things that the government may actually be interacting and playing this game. There's so many of these Milab stories of people being taught to levitate stuff, being taught to levitate balls, objects. Uh, it's all the same sort of thing, which is critically important to the to me, I think, to the idea that the aliens are evil. I came across this consciousness thing, which we can sort of get into. But the whole thing was that I, I, I first learned about this February of last year when I lectured at UFO Congress. I lectured on consciousness. A woman contacted me and told me she told me she was flying the flying saucer. And I said, you what? Flying the flying saucer? She said, yeah, I've flown quite a few of them. And I said, you've flown the flying saucer? You've flown them? And I said, why do you do that? She said, well, I do, you do it with your mind. Mm-hmm. And then suddenly within uh, six months, I had... 
uh, 18 people, and mostly women, who came to me and said that they've flown the flying saucer. And so the, the whole point is, if they're evil aliens here to eat us, or whatever the scenario is, why are they teaching women or other people to fly the flying saucer? It, does, it doesn't make any sense. If you're, if you're on the, the human race, if you are a woman in Saudi Arabia, you cannot drive a car. But if the aliens grab you, they'll let you fly the flying saucer. It seems like they're doing something to train us to get us ready for something. Right. And, and also, when you're talking about the military involvement, something comes to my mind, and I think they might have some sort of a, an interest in the communication between oh, yeah. the experiencers. And, of course, they would want to keep track of these people for whatever reason yep. to make sure they aren't of a hostile nature. You know, maybe we have some secrets that we might be able to share with them as far as their engineering is concerned. So I can, I can totally see where, you know, the whole men in black thing. I've had that experience myself. I feel that I've been watched and it's very, a very uncomfortable feeling to be in the situation that you have no control over. Yeah. The, the, the CIA actually made a statement. Um, one of the people in the CIA made this statement that I always quoted because we cannot control the phenomena. We watch the people who are affected by the phenomena. Right. The aliens are in, are, are in charge, and the and the the government means maybe part of the cover up is you're scrambling to try to figure out how it all fits together. I mean, Melinda Leslie will tell these stories about people are given pieces of a, of, of a, a craft from a from a, a down craft or something, and can you work this? And they can tell whether the person is a legitimate contactee by whether they can make this piece of equipment work. If you're a normal human being or whatever you can't but if you're a contactee you can make this thing work so um it's very interesting the, the connection uh, i used to think well it was sort of like um um you hear these stories that they they were trying to figure out what was going on but that doesn't make any sense because if you want to know what's going on just you know look over and ask the alien you're right beside the alien i mean it, it, there has to be some sort of cooperation going on because both of them are, are sort of seen in the same room and it might indicate that um they were convinced to go along with this plan that the aliens have. And uh, to me, it may be the, the aliens may have done this a thousand times before. If you look at the Foo Fighter uh, team, they may be on another planet right now. You know, uh, the, the, the airship guys are on another planet. I mean, they just may move from planet to planet, and they run this same scenario through. And they've done it so many times before, they know exactly how to do it, because they, they do seem to know what they're doing. And, and it, it, whatever it is, this is the, kind of the scary part. When it comes to the, the abduction thing, it started with uh, Betty and Barney Hill, 1961. Then you had this police officer, 1967. You had the the uh, Pascagoula case, 1973. Travis Walton, and then it just sort of exploded. And now the numbers, I mean, are you know some people are saying two percent, fifteen percent. I mean, you could be talking fifty million Americans that have been abducted. And, and this is the the key part is that if if it's alien, it's going to be very deep, it's going to be very large, and it's going to be very involved. And that seems to be what's unfolding with this music thing that it's not just one or two musicians it's like they basically are across the board they've influenced all sorts of stuff and it's very complex it's not just a, an alien message it's a message of love it's a message of the environment because all the same people that i say are that aliens seem to be influencing in terms of their music are all the environmental people they're all into right. uh saving the planet and uh environment and uh, war and peace and all this kind of stuff it, it's uh it, it seems to be a more and more you look at it the more it looks like the aliens are in control of an awful lot of stuff that very little that happens is random. Uh, as my right. father said, uh, there were, my father had the accident investigation team for the, for the Canadian government and he said there are no plane accidents. There are no accidents. 
things happen for a reason. Mm. And it seems, it seems that way with the aliens. The more I look at it, the more it looks like all this is a plan and all we are doing is watching the plan unfold. Well, you know, Grant, you're really fascinating because out of all the people who are doing research on this subject and, you know, various um, avenues of, of the subject itself, you are probably one of the only ones that I've met who are delving into the conscious aspect of this phenomenon. And I commend you very highly for that because it is a very brave thing because it's not very uh, welcomed, I think, in the scientific community. Obviously, you know that very well. But what was it that led you to go down that path? And and do you think that consciousness, obviously, you know that consciousness has a lot to do with the phenomenon, but why do you think that is? And and then after that, I want to get into... Um, the whole music aspect of it, because I think that okay. you're really onto something. Okay, I'll explain how that happened to me. Um, I, I think it's like sightings. I think very few people who really get into the UFO thing get in because they sort of rationalize that this would be a smart move, you know, a, a career move or whatever. Most people get in because they had an experience or um, they happen to be given a book or something. They, they sort of get dragged in. That's what happened with the with me, my first sighting. I had no intention of seeing anything, not interested. Same thing happened in terms of consciousness. What happened with the consciousness thing was I, I was at an event in um, – because I live in the coldest major city in the world. <laughs> uh, we go to Phoenix. I'm in Phoenix right now. Uh, we usually go to Phoenix for a month or two months, whatever you can afford or whatever. Lots of Winnipeggers own houses down in Phoenix. And uh, I was down in Phoenix at the UFO Congress. This was 2012. This is exactly the same day that Chris Bledsoe gets pulled by the Shining Lady and is reminded of the fact that he has a burden to share with the world. And this is February the 26th. Colin Andrews is lecturing. He's the guy that invented the term crop circle. He's the foremost authority. I had no intention of going to the lecture because if you've been to Congress, you know, it goes day and night for five days. And it's like you don't go to all the lectures. It's like, you know, you got to have a break sometimes. So I wasn't going to go to the lecture. I decided, now nah, he's a big guy. I mean, he's a world famous and I haven't heard him lecture for a number of years. I'll go and watch his lecture. I'm in the lecture. And as I told uh, Jerry Pippen, who was kind of sort of uh, shocked that, I, a nuts and bolts document guy, would go over to the consciousness side. I said to Jerry, I, I, I didn't go on, I didn't go uh, willingly, Jerry. I was teleported there. And that's what happened. I was in this lecture, and Colin Andrews is giving a lecture on consciousness and circles. He has just written a book, very important book. Uh, I think it's called The Edge of Reality, On the Edge of Reality. And it talks about uh, the his abduction experience. It talks about consciousness, how it fits into crop circles, how it fits into the whole UFO thing. Uh, so he's talking about consciousness and circles and how 80% of crop circles are hoaxed, 20% are real by aliens, and the aliens are doing the 20%, and they're making the hoaxers do the other 80%, that they're controlling the whole thing. It's all controlled by them. And I'm hearing that, and I'm really, you know, just whatever. I'm really, it's a lecture. I'm not really too amazed by it, whatever. And I get this download. I talked to you already about this top-secret Canadian memo. When he talked about this consciousness thing being the key to this whole thing, it suddenly I started getting this this sort of download of all this material that had happened during my career, that everything started to make sense. Mm-hmm. I mentioned the Canadians were told in 1950. This is two years before any contactees appeared. The first contactees were Adamski and Williamson. They did not appear until a couple days after the detonation of the hydrogen bomb in 1952. There was nobody in 1950 walking around saying, we're talking to aliens. Nobody. 
Betty and Barney Hill wouldn't appear until 1961. So this is 1950, and the Canadians are told already the mental phenomena may be associated with flying saucers. And when I when this came into my head, I went, "That's what that that's the most important part of the memo," and I'd never really quoted. That's what they're talking about. It's the consciousness thing. The Canadians knew this in 1950 already, that consciousness was part of the whole thing. And at the same time, as I said, we tracked back and we came across this Dr. Eric Walker, who's former president of Penn State University. We're doing an interview with him, and of course, we're nuts and bolts guy. We, you know, like, I always tell the story that men are into crashes and bodies and, uh, you know, hardware. <laughs> Women, they're, they're into the, uh, the, um, the sort of the, uh, consciousness part and i used to tell the joke that you know if you go to ufo uh, crash saucer uh conferences that used to be held by ryan wood in las vegas uh there'd be 150 people in the room and there'd be uh, uh three women there'd be linda howe and two other women who couldn't find a car to go shopping i mean there's, <laughs> there's just no women in the room it was just and, and yet if you go to the the ufo congress they have this experiencer thing that happens an hour before the first lecture, it's first thing in the morning, and I say it's like a blue light special at Walmart. Can't get in the room, they're bringing extra chairs, it's all women, there's there's guys, but it's a lot of women, they're trying to get in, this is all this consciousness stuff. So when we're interviewing Walker, we're doing, of course, the nuts and bolts stuff, and we're asking about MJ-12, is there still just 12 people, and he's trying not to talk about this, and uh, is it all Americans, or is it all, is it an international group and stuff, and then he cuts it off, he says, look, let me ask you a question. And this popped into my head as, as Colin's giving this lecture. And suddenly it made sense to me. He said, look, let me ask you a question. And the guy in Britain said, what? And he said, what do you know about ESP? And the guy in Britain didn't really have an answer. So Walker answers his own question. And remember, the question is about MJ-12, about this control group that runs the whole thing. He said, look, unless you understand about ESP and how it works, you will not be taken in. He's referring to the control group. They're a very elite group. Of special people. Very few people understand about ESP. So this popped into my head. I go, that's what Walker was talking about. It's consciousness. And then the third thing that popped into my head was Jan Hartson, who I talked about this sighting. He gets influenced by this sighting, this flying saucer in his backyard, you know, when he's nine years old. He's, of course, influenced and he wants to find out about UFO propulsion. He graduates from engineering from UCLA. In 1993, Ben Rich, who also graduated from UCLA, is giving a lecture at, at UCLA to the engineering alumni. Jan Hartson's in the room. Ben Rich shows the last slide. He's talking about the uh, he ran uh, Skunk Works, the U2, the SR-71, all the drones that are flying around now. That's all developed out of Skunk Works. He's talking about the technology in Skunk Works, and he shows the final slide is this flying saucer. And that's when he makes the famous statement. He says, we now have the technology to take E.T. home. We've discovered the mistake in the equation, and it's not going to take a lifetime to do. It's going to take an act of God to get it out of Congress because it's so deep black. Jan Hartson's going, wow, I've been waiting my whole life for this. This guy's the top guy. So he chases him, and there's questions. And as Ben Rich is leaving the building, Jan Hartson chases him, and he said, Ben, what are you talking about? You've discovered the mistake in the equation. I'm interested in UO for propulsion. How does it work? Ben Rich turns around and he says exactly what Walker said two years before. He said, let me ask you a question. What do you know about ESP? And Jan Hartson says, well, that just means everything in time and space is connected. And Ben Rich said, that's how it works. <laughs> and he gets in his, walks out of the thing, gets in his car and drives away. So it, when I'm watching this lecture, these get these three downloads that these are high-level guys. This is the head of Skunk Works. This is an assistant secretary of defense, the head of Penn State University. This is the Canadian government. These are high-level people saying, 
consciousness, mental phenomena. This is how it works. This is the key. And that's how the Canadians knew in 1950. Because what I say now is it's, I think the general consensus is that the Roswell crash had three dead aliens and a live alien. And so when you pick up the, the, the Roswell thing, you realize there is no control stick. They're not flying it with, with a steering wheel. And the alien is talking in their head and they suddenly realize, Holy cow, the technology. We've got to develop this technology, this, this mental phenomena technology. And that's exactly what happened. The Canadians write this memo in November of 1950. Exactly six months later, some of the same people that were involved in this flying saucer thing for the Canadians were involved in a meeting that took place 60 miles down the road in Montreal at a hotel. That was the beginning of MK Ultra, the mind control thing. They are immediately in 1950, they started this mind control and that's when they did the LSD experiments and the drugs. They realized that consciousness, because they had a live alien, they realized this was a critical thing to understand how consciousness works, how to get into somebody's mind because they had all this military technology. That's why MKUltra started, not because they were interested in developing drug technologies or anything. They realized the importance of consciousness. Well, you know, I had an experience right around the same time that I wanted to know about electromagnetics that I remembered after reading Whitley Straber's communion, like you said earlier, I was one of those ones that were triggered by that uh, book cover. And I remembered an experience that I had had where I was on a craft and it was probably the most incredible experience. And that's when my experience actually changed. It went from a very uh, malevolent experience to a very, I almost felt like I had graduated I had gone to the next level in the experience, even at nine, which I thought was quite young, thinking about it now. But I did make that note that there were no controls. Yeah. And and what I saw was a smooth counter, um, cylindrical around the room, and they basically just manipulated their hands, almost like you're like washing a window. I can't even explain it. But it it just was so baffling to me because I, I thought, how is this happening? But they weren't touching the control panel, though. No. Yeah. No. Yeah. And there was no contact. No. So yeah. there is something you said about the workings of the mind. You know, it, it makes so much sense when you say that. But how do you explain that? Yeah. You know, in, in layman's terms, I mean, you know, so obviously we need to pay more attention to sure. the mind and the things that we're getting in our consciousness. Uh, the message is definitely there that we need to not. And they did tell me this as well. We're trying too hard to figure it out. Okay. You, there, what, what was that again? We are trying too hard to figure it out. Yeah, that, that, they almost that's laughed. Sure. You know, and I and I'm thinking, yeah. well, what does that mean? It's everything's right in front of your face. Yeah. And and I just thought, wow, that is just so amazing that, you know, we're that's totally typical of the human race. Sure. You know, it, it's like we have everything right in front of us, yet we never choose to see it. Yeah, and that that's another thing that's key that I find with contactees. If you listen to Roger Lear, who does the uh, alien uh, implant stuff, he's in Hollywood, and he said, and I agree with this when it comes to musicians, that if you look at the uh, experiencers, um, Lear said the only thing that's consistent with all experiencers is they're all right-brain people. They're all creative. They're all, um, you know, uh, artistic, and... They're the people who basically are picked by the aliens They're because they have this openness. The guys that are trying to figure it out, they couldn't care less about it. I mean, the guys that are trying to rationalize stuff. 
and that seems to work. It worked with me was you just say, okay, I really don't know what's going on here. Just open yourself up and say, well, wherever this takes me, let's go. And then things start to work. And people will describe this, this is probably what they're describing, is that when you just sort of uh, ask for answers and just sort of let it happen, mm-hmm. it works a lot better than trying to uh, sort of uh, bang it, you know, with a hammer. Then, you know, it's, it, it's, it's probably very simple. And uh, this is a key thing that all, almost all the musicians, all the contactees, they're all these uh, creative uh, right brain people. Right. And you also mentioned, um, I was listening to one of your interviews, that you were interested in the works of Edgar Casey. Yeah. And possibly, I'm also assuming that would also be uh, near-death experiences as well as reincarnation. Yeah. So, that's, so, how I, that, that's how I started. Okay. And that's, right. that's how it sort of come full circle. Wow. I'm back, I'm back to where I started because I had no interest in UFOs, but I did have interest in um, Edgar Casey, and I had interest in near-death studies. Uh, I was raised very religious, and I was uh, uh, I sort of make this quote, and I, I've always realized this my whole life. Uh, Mark Twain made this famous quote: "There are two very there are two important dates in your life. The most important day is when you're born, and the second one is when you find out why." And so my whole life, I was on this thing about you know why are we here, where we're we going, and that's all that really sort of preoccupied me. So I, I was interested when I was at university. I was interested in near-death studies. I mean, it was, uh, I sort of knew that, that I wasn't interested in university stuff. I couldn't figure out how you could possibly make money with all this stupid nonsense we were learning at university calculus and stuff like It was just nonsense. <laughs> but the near-death studies stuff was just fascinating. We took this course in near-death studies and I did a paper where I went, I went to the hospital and I, I went and I interviewed all the chaplains. I didn't interview doctors and nurses because I already realized they had a vested interest. It was the chaplain who was there when the person died. There was no garbage anymore. It was sort of like, you know, this is, when the rubber hits the road and I talked to the chaplains and I'd ask them all these questions like, uh, and this is when near-death studies was really new when it was just coming out. I said, you know, anybody ever have a, you know, a vision of somebody coming to see them, uh, near, uh, you know, near-death study or somebody coming into their hospital bed and, and visiting them before they die? Anybody ever predict their death? Are there any miracles? Anybody ever get walk out of the hospital? I had all these weird questions about what death was like. And now it's sort of come right back because that's where I started was this consciousness thing. And now when you come to the consciousness thing with, with contactees, you have all these parallels, very direct parallels with near-death studies. It's almost exactly the same sort of experience. So it doesn't really matter whether it's almost like the aliens are taking you where the near-death studies stuff. You're being moved to this different frequency, different level or whatever, and your experience, you're seeing a lot of the same sort of things are are, are taking place. You're getting these downloads of, of information, of uh, direction and uh you know the white light, the the experience of the oneness, the experience of this overwhelming love that, as Bud Hopkins described, the one woman said she would give up her firstborn child to continue to experience. I mean, this dramatic these things that that occur in both experiences. So now I'm back where I started from be, before I got into UFOs. Is this whole thing is how does it fit into life? How does it fit into death? How, how does the universe work? And and what's the basis of the universe? Is it physical? Is it uh, consciousness? Is it you know whatever it is. Do you feel that uh, there's a connection? Obviously, I feel that a lot of these things are connected. But as far as like the near-death experience is concerned, um, do you feel there's a connection, an ET connection? Because I've also heard people saying that when they've had an experience or a visitation, that they've seen their dead loved ones come uh, to them as well yeah. in the same experience. Yeah. 
Yeah, there's there's two different opinions. Uh, if you listen to Hopkins and Jacobs, they they'll maintain that um, they just do this stuff to manipulate you to get you on their side. Uh, the other view, which I think uh, I sort of followed, is the view that Leo Sprinkle has. Uh, Leo Sprinkle's view of this whole thing is that it's basically just a spiritual experience, which comes back to my interest in real obsession with the work of Dr. Michael Newton, which I won't sort of get into, but it's life between lives, with this idea mm-hmm. that a lot of a, a lot of stuff is is sort of planned. So you have um, with the uh, Leo Sprinkle putting out this theory that everything is is sort of planned ahead of time and that everything is a spiritual experience. It's, it's you're just living one of many lives and it's a school and you're you learn these various lessons, you go to different levels. So what he says is that above our physical realm there's all these different uh realms, spiritual realms getting more and more spiritual as you move up, less and less physical and that those are the shepherds. And we here, the physical are the sheep. And the aliens are at a higher level than us. They're physical but they're they're higher up they are like the sheepdogs and they're working sort of with the spiritual realms and when we get off the spiritual path when we get into nuclear weapons or when we start to destroy the environment they are like the sheepdogs that nip at our heels and get us back on the spiritual path so i sort of agree with leo sprinkle that all this is going to turn out is all going to be spiritual and that's what basically comes back to the, the critical thing that i say there's this new experiencer group or this the support group for experiencers, which I say the number one study they should run is this critical study about the question that's asked during the regression. And this goes back to Chris Bledsoe. Chris Bledsoe was asked about this promise, and he said, they have been with me since before I was born. Yes. And he, and, and he talks about this idea that he was cured of incurable Crohn's disease. He, had, he was taking 14 prescription drugs a day. He had sold his business. He was near death. He was in bed for a year. He had the, the abduction experience. He never took another pill in his life. And he has the other experience that he remembers being in outer space. He's nine years old. He gets shot in the back with a shotgun from six feet away with one of his kids. They're out shooting. And he gets shot. And he remembers hitting the ground and feeling the leaves hit his, his face. And he's thinking, why did you shoot me? And he said, next thing he's standing in outer space and he's standing on a platform and he can see all around him but he knows he's standing on something and the aliens tell him we were with you then and we're with you now and the aliens had been with him all the time and they said before he was born which comes down to this critical critical thing where there was this big debate took place on the internet about whether the aliens are good or they're bad and it was uh mary rodwell debate versus uh david jacobs and stuff and i said it all comes down to the one question if you ask the question in an abduction, at any point in the past, did you agree to be in this situation? Mm. According to Mary Rodwell and according to Dolores Cannon, we don't know yes. what uh, Barbara Lamb says, but according to Dolores Cannon, who's done thousands, and, and Mary Rodwell says thousands, they say yes. They will all say yes. I don't care what you do after you ask that question. I don't care how you run it back. The minute you say yes, you say, okay, go to the source. Let's run that question back. And I say, if you ask that question to all abductees, did you agree to this and run that question back, you will answer every single question in the UFO world. That's what it comes down to is finding out what's behind this, what actually happened, that's where the answers come. But if you're Jacobs and Hopkins, you will not ask uh, ask that question. Mary Rodwell told me she brought it up with, with, with Bud Hopkins, this idea about this thing starting before birth, to ask the question. And she said Bud Hopkins got up and walked out of the restaurant. Oh, and, my goodness. And, and, and so they won't deal with this question because they don't want to – 
they don't believe there's a spiritual element. They want to be academics. They're doing it an academic way. We've got to keep the spirituality out of it. And in the end, it's going to be a uh, entire spiritual program. It's all just part of an, uh, an, a much, much bigger thing that lasts forever. From you've been here forever, you're going to be here forever, and you're, this is part, as Shakespeare said, I don't know, I used to hate Shakespeare, <laughs> but, but now I quote him, all the world's a stage. Right. All men and women are but actors. You have your entrances and you have your exits. And each man plays in seven acts. It's basically just this, uh, we're playing a role. We've come into this life to learn about envy, greed, hatred, love, fear. We're to learn our lessons. And the aliens are talking about the same thing. And the fact that they're, they're, they're not going to give you disclosure. In fact, in the second abduction, this 1970, I always quote, now if you see my email, I quote this uh, police officer who was abducted in 1967, and the message that was given to him by the aliens was, we want you to believe in us, but just a little bit. Mm. The aliens are not going to give you the answer. If the aliens wanted you to know what was going on, they'd land on the White House lawn and make a speech. They don't because it's part of school. To give you, as the alien said in, in one occasion, if we gave you the answers, it wouldn't be much of a test. It's all going to school. It's learning the lessons. It's not finding the end result. We all want to know. We think, well, if we get the, the answer to the UFO situation, then suddenly the roses are going to come out, the, the sky is going to clear, and the world's going to be a wonderful place. It's not true. You're still going to have your lessons. You're still going to take your kids to school tomorrow. You're still going to have to go to work. Life is learning lessons, and this is only part of, of the lessons that we have to learn. And you've been given different roles. If you've been if you're in the UFO phenomenon, as I believe that I'm in the UFO, part of our role is whatever this unfolding is. This is part of we volunteered to do this, as, as Barbara La or um, Dolores Cannon talks about, the three waves. We volunteered to come to Earth to disclose this thing, to move this UFO issue on. And when I talk to people in the UFO, because people are always complaining, ah, oh, you know, we don't have disclosure, and yeah, everybody's, you know, whining and complaining. I said, look at it this way. You and I have been picked to be playing in the most important story that has ever hit the human race. This is like playing in the Super Bowl. You got play, you got picked to play in the Super Bowl. What more could you ask from life? <laughs> Think about it. You could be born and untouchable in the streets of Calcutta, India and be homeless and live in the, in the garbage dump and be spend your entire day trying to find something valuable enough to sell to buy food for tomorrow. We didn't get that. We got this wonderful thing where we're in this thing where we get to experience this and we get to understand how life works and we get to help other people. To me, we should be honored to be picked. Into Thank you this, for saying that. I, I, I want to stop you right now because I have heard so many people. I mean, I, I get a, a lot of emails and people contacting me for support. And I feel such a, a I don't know, like a positive and negative uh, feeling from a lot of experiencers. And there are so many people out there who are just devastated. And I'm. It's it's really hard to try and get people to understand that aspect of this experience. You know, yeah. you need to understand why this is here for you. Treat it as such. Treat it as a positive experience and and look at it with wonder instead of fear. We need to let learn to let go of the fear when it comes to this phenomenon. If you don't, you're always going to be afraid of it. Yeah. I embrace it. I feel I feel so fortunate to be involved in this. I mean, Maybe, you know, years ago I wouldn't have said that, but I feel like I've evolved and learned so much yeah. about the things that I've been shown. And the, the fact that I actually have the opportunity to share these things 
Yeah. And 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 ha- by letting go of the fear, I've decided I don't care what people think about me. And that's a huge step for people like you as well. You know, yeah. we we have to think about our lives, our careers, our families, you know, everything's at risk. Yeah. You know, but that's the the ultimate sacrifice yeah. when you think about yeah. it. Sure. I th- I think what it, what it comes down to is we live in a western society where I describe we want more and we want it yesterday. Mm. We want it right now. We want an answer, right. we want this. And basically people who are sort of um, sort of having a trouble with it, I think are people who haven't had the regression, who haven't got to their second or third regression. The first time it happens to you, of course it's going to be uh, unsettling. I mean, most things that you learn in life are things that happen bad. You learn lessons when things go bad, not when things go right. That's when you're going to learn the lessons. And the, the first time around, sure, when you suddenly realize your your rights have been violated and you got taken against your will and you got probed and all this kind of stuff, but you get to the person the third or fourth regression, suddenly they think they're going to save the world. I mean, suddenly it was, oh, that's what's going on. Okay, now I'm, I'm picked I'm, <laughs> and I'm special. And it's, it's just a, 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 a lot of times where people are. They, they just haven't gotten into it. And you've got to sort of hold their hand and get them to move to the next step and realize, especially this thing about this question, that if it's asked this question about, did you agree to this? Because right. people are saying, I've been violated, I'm, whatever. But if, if it's part of the regression is, did you agree to this? And the person say, hears themselves on the tape say, yeah, I agree to this. Then it changes the right. whole perspective. It, it is really not, it's not, an abdu- it's not an abduction anymore. No. This is part of a plan. Thank You're you for saying part that. Of game. Yep. So that's why it's so critically important that, that this, this be a study that somebody do right. and start to record the results and track it back and see where it goes. Right. You know, Dolores Cannon, when I read her book, it changed my perspective so much in, in that respect because who knows? I mean, who knows if we didn't choose this path here in this lifetime sure. to do these things? Yeah. And if that's the case, then we're doing exactly what we should be doing. We are well, every yeah. single day, no matter like having a toast or, or cereal for breakfast, what have you. We yeah. chose to be in this family living in the United States or exactly. Canada, what have you. So yeah. what do we have to complain about? Exactly. Exactly. And if you hear yourself say it, then maybe when you're sitting back, because to me, I had the Edgar Casey thing. And the thing that always stuck with me all the years, I mean, certain expressions, the main expression that stuck with me with Edgar Casey was knowledge not used is sin. Mm. So I've, that, I've lived that my whole life. It's like, you mean, you, if you hear yourself saying, yes, I agree to this and suddenly you realize like, holy cow, I've been sitting around on my back. <laughs> behind and doing nothing and suddenly you get inspired to do something when you hear the fact that you were actually part of it so to me that's the whole thing it's better actually to be somebody who's in india who knows nothing because then nothing is expected the bible says to whom much is given much is expected so if if you're in the situation with you and i and you suddenly realize where you are and, and what you've got you have no choice but to go out and to try to do what you can Otherwise, you feel guilty. You feel like you're, you're sitting around doing nothing. You realize what your mission is and what you're supposed to do. So that's a critical thing is to motivate people to realize that they have a mission mm. rather than just being sort of floating around like a bunch of random particles and we're biological robots and everything's a big uh, Powerball lottery and all this kind of stuff. When you suddenly realize it's not random and that that, that all makes sense, that you've got something, then people will be motivated to go out there and, and the thing will move along a lot faster. I, I received a message once, and that was, don't live your life like life owes you something. Exactly. Sure. So exactly. Um, we need to talk about music, and we've got a <laughs> lot to talk about. Okay, so Grant, let's talk about the music then. And 
I am so excited to talk about this because that is how we actually met. And that was by exchanging emails because you were so passionate about having this concept or a thought or a download. I don't know where it came from. There are certain musicians out there who you feel are contactees and experiencers. And I was absolutely floored because I have felt that pretty much my whole life because I've loved music so much and they've always resonated with me. And I didn't know why until we started having this back and forth in the emails. So tell me. Okay. Uh, I'll tell you my version, which is sort of different than yours. I was a musical idiot. I was, um, my mother was a church organist for 40 years. Uh, my father built theater organs. Um, my, both my sisters are very musical. My younger sister can play any instrument there is. I mean, very, very musical. Um, they put me in music lessons after a couple months. They pulled me out and realized it was a total waste of time. I never listened to music. I listened to talk radio my whole life. I had no interest in music. And what happened was I got very involved in the Chris Bledsoe case, the 2007 five-person abduction and all the bizarre events that happened after that. Um, I went to see him in North Carolina. And uh, shortly after that, he sent me an email. And he said uh, that he had been told by the aliens that um, they were influencing music and that he was to look in the music for the message. He sent two uh, songs. I didn't pay any attention to either. I thought, well, it's kind of interesting, but I didn't really play them. One was uh, Led Zeppelin's song called uh, Kashmir. And I still haven't really listened to the song. I just know the, the story and how it, how it got to me. Uh, I've talked to other people who uh, were obsessed when they when Chris sent it to them, and they've listened to it 150 times. Uh, one of the weirdest things about Kashmir, you see these synchronistic events that take place. Uh, this is one of the songs that Chris sent, and um, in the movie John Carter. Uh, I don't know if it's in the movie, but it did, definitely is in the trailer uh, that they used to advertise it. Um, they get a group of girls, young girls, who sing Kashmir. It's like a choir. And in the trailer to the movie, the aliens are chanting this song. So this is one of the ones that Chris said was what he believed was one of the ones that had the message, that the alien had inspired him to get this. The other song he sent was a song that was written by a guy who came out of my city, which sort of really got me interested because it was Neil Young, who's big, he's in the States now, who's a heavy environmentalist. He's actually in Canada right now uh, on a four-city tour um raising money for the aboriginals to pipe the oil sands development in Alberta. And he sings a song uh, which was called um, After the Gold Rush. And that one I've listened to a few times, and this one is like a clear E.T. song. If there ever was an E.T. song inspired by the aliens, this is what it is, because it basically has the contact message. It basically talks about the fact that we're treating the world like a gold rush, and that when the gold runs out, the world will be like a ghost town. And then the flying saucers will come down and they'll take the chosen people and they will move and and go into another uh, star system and they'll be implanted there to uh, start another civilization. This is what the song is about. It was written, I think, in the late 60s. And what happened was Dolly Parton and Linda Ronstead and somebody else, they wanted to do a trio to do this song. They went to Neil Young years later and they asked them, they said, well, what does this song mean? What, what is it? And Neil said, I have no idea what it means. None. He said I was stoned when I wrote it. He said each verse probably <laughs> means something different depending upon w what I was on. 
Now that's the critical thing that I got into later after the the, the song thing was this influence on drugs. Mm-hmm. That that some of this thing may be influenced by drugs and the aliens may be playing into this as well. So I had these two songs uh, that Chris had given me, and then what happened was uh, Colin Andrews was on a was on Mike Clellan's podcast show. And on that, if you listen to him, he talks about the music. And when I heard that, I went, wow, that's when I started chasing it. And he said that he had talked to a number of bands who had told him that they had been influenced by music. So I contacted Colin Andrews, and he gave me five bands. And I can sort of go through them. The um, the, the biggest, most powerful one is the band Yes. Mm. Um, it is a band that sold 50 million albums. It's a British band. Uh, John Anderson is the head of the band. And what I found when I started looking at all these um, different bands, it was always the lead singer. I mean, there may have been one exception or two, but it's always the lead singer who's the weird guy, the UFO guy who's getting the messages and who's got the UFO experiences and stuff. So John Anderson uh, is the head of Yes, and they had actually played in front of half a million people at one time at a concert in Germany, which is what I think is important when you're looking at this this um, – alien thing, whether they're uh, subconsciously uh, sending messages through the music, that is that if you take a look at John Anderson, you're talking 50 million albums, but you're talking songs that are probably played thousands of times on the radio, and that every time it's played on the radio, there are thousands, if not tens of thousands, or hundreds of thousands of people listening. Huge numbers. So if you're listening to plays, like actual number of times that number of people have listened to this song, it would for all these bands, it would be in the billions, if not the trillions. These are huge, huge numbers of people just hearing us something in their head, is seeing it to their head. And as I mentioned previously, it's this critical 12 to 8, 20 age group. These kids who are defiant, who are open to new ideas, don't want to believe what their parents have to say, who change their clothes every six months, they change their cell phone, they're, they're open, they're, they're excited, they, they want to have new stuff. So these are the downloads. Now, John Anderson actually was interviewed, uh, this would be about six months ago maybe, and he actually talks about his experiences, talks about the fact that he believes that all music comes from the Pleiades, that all art comes from the Pleiades, and he talks about some of his experiences. But what it was added later, it's not in that interview, but he did tell the people off air and he told Colin Andrews, was the fact that he was in doing a show in Las Vegas, and that he was at the Caesar's Palace at his hotel room, and then an alien came through the wall and gave him information. And that's what's critical about this whole thing. If the aliens are actually uh, giving material, downloading material to these these um, musicians, this is extremely significant because these are very influential people. They, uh, if you look at all the social and political movements, all the things that have changed in history, they have changed by children, by teenager music you're looking at the it's end of the war at vietnam the gay rights the whole gay rights thing was david bowie mm. david bowie comes dressed as a as a gay alien mm. they call they call it the four minutes to change the world mm-hmm. this was the big the, the sort of the big move for the gay rights movement was this guy who said at 12 years old he believed the aliens were watching his his uh, how he reacted and what he studied and all this sort of stuff it, the band the Ronson, who was a, the the drummer 
for his band called the Spiders from Mars when he was playing this uh, Ziggy Stardust, this alien that comes from another planet. This was his role. He was like an alien from another planet, stated that Bowie believed that aliens were following him around and trying to influence his thought. So here's the same thing as John Anderson from Yes. And Bowie did 140 million albums. Bowie started in the 1960s. Bowie today in Great Britain on independent labels is still a top-selling musician in Great Britain. He's a very, very powerful guy, has a, a lot of influence. A lot of people listen to him. So this, you look at this sort of thing, and when I started to look, and I started to look at the number of bands, it started to look like the abduction phenomenon. It started like, you know, 61 with Betty and Barney Hill, 67 with this police officer, you know, and they, they were three, four years apart, and suddenly it's like boom, 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 boom. And that's what's happening to this alien thing. It's like almost every day I have uh, a new person who's uh, definitely sort of uh, been abducted or had these uh, these things. Rob Thomas is the one I had today. I've been spending most of the day. Rob Thomas from this, uh, where they, I can't remember what the name of the band is. But he, he's a big-time guy. I mean, 2000, he directly says he was abducted. So you, you get this sort of thing that these guys are in Sammy Hagar. This- well, Sammy Hagar was another one of the big ones. Sammy Hagar was the one that, that was with um, Van Halen, the biggest band from 1978 to 84, 100 million albums. I mean, Sammy Hagar, the head of the band, who basically says that, that he woke up one night and the aliens were downloading his brain. And he said the the light was so bright that he couldn't really open his eyes and that they were downloading his brain. And the guy asked him, are you telling us you were abducted? And he said, yeah, I believe I was abducted. So that's when you start coming down to these things where you got Rob Thomas or Hagar or, or Bowie. Uh, I mean, Hagar was 100 million albums as well. These are major, major, major figures who uh, basically are creating this consciousness move. And that's what I say is happening, that if the aliens are doing this, which I believe they are, what you're doing is you're moving consciousness. You don't worry about the, the skeptics. You don't worry about the old people. You go after that that age category that is changing, that is that is at the edge of society, that's bringing in the new music, bringing in the new ideas. And that's how consciousness changes. It changes with the young people and the old ideas. The old people will die away. And if you give it enough movement through bands, you're going to have a situation where the consciousness will rise to this critical mass and then it's going to be like the gay rights movement or the the the, the story I always tell about the, the gay marriage thing where you have the conservatives are fighting it and everybody's fighting it. And you have all these skeptics, the same as we have our skeptics. I'm in the States and there's Rush Limbaugh. And I listen to Rush Limbaugh because I got a joke at him when I'm traveling <laughs> around the country in my car. And I, I was there. I actually heard him say it. He the, There was the, the gay gay marriage thing. And I remember him saying, ah, that's it. They got it. Give it to him. That's it. Give him, gay, give him gay, gay marriage. And I went, wow. I actually saw consciousness change in my lifetime. On the air, I heard him say it. Give it to him. They've got gay marriage. And that's how it changes. Just that the, you get the most conservative guy that's fighting it just suddenly says, okay, forget it. They've got it. And that's what happens with consciousness. People in the UFO community will say, ah, oh, the world's going to hell and it, everything's bad and all this sort of stuff. And I say, no. Go back 150 years. You don't think consciousness has changed. Go back 150 years. It was quite a right to say blacks couldn't couldn't uh, vote, that you could have a slave. That was quite a right. I mean, you could have a slave. Women vote? Are you kidding? Not till 1920 did women get the, the right to vote. And even when they got the right to vote, it didn't solve their problems. Even when I was in the 60s, there were still black 
and white bathrooms. Mm-hmm. I mean, you take a look at this and, and, you know, gays and gay marriage and, and the idea of the environment. The, the, the word ecology was not developed till 1935. Before 1935, it was a free for all. It was like survival of the fittest. You grab whatever you can. I grab whatever I can. We drive the price of products down. We produce a lot of stuff and we can do whatever we want. We can build nuclear plants. We can pollute the water. We, it, it's my business. Stay out of my business. Suddenly, in 1935, suddenly this ecology thing starts. About the same time the UFO stuff starts, you have this ecology. And this is the the alien message. It's this message of oneness that whatever you do affects the one. Before it was this individual thing. It was like random particles. We can do whatever we want. We doesn't, you know, doesn't affect anybody else. It's the survival of the fittest is the way that, that the world evolves. And then suddenly you get this this sort of the alien message, this oneness that whatever you do affects the universe. And if you take a look back and you look at actual physics, if you take a look at the guy who came up with the idea of the holographic universe, this oneness idea of the universe, it was David. David, David Michael Michael Talbot. No, uh, well he he wrote the book, but it was David Bohm who who came up with the physics idea. He was the one that came up with the idea, and then Talbot wrote the book about it. But Bohm in the in the fifties came up with this idea. And he had exactly the alien message. You listen to his his lectures and his interviews. He talks the alien message. He had no interest in aliens. He all he was talking about was this idea that there's two views of the the world. That there is this this random view that the world's a big accident. There's no God. It's like just you know everything just happened. It's a big powerball thing. And there were just random particles bouncing into each other. And this comes to this idea that that you can do whatever you want. And Bohm said that. Because that was the attitude that was capitalism. It's like grab whatever you can and, and the growth. You always have to have growth. It has to get bigger and bigger and bigger. He described the world as a swarm of locusts that has descended upon the earth. And he said that unless you get the oneness idea, and he's not, he's not into UFOs. He's talking about the oneness. Unless you get the, the idea of the oneness that everything affects the environment and you stop this thing of growth, we're going off the cliff. And he said he did not believe we would make it. And he died in the 1990s or something. He said, I do not believe we will make it. I don't think we can change the attitude enough to get to this oneness idea. And it's exactly the same idea. That's why they, if you take a look at the contactees, they have this oneness thing. We're destroying the environment. You've got to stop this, this, this thing. You've got to, you know, look at the one, the, the idea of love and all this kind of stuff. And it's the same idea that Bohm came up with. And these are the kind of messages that are coming through these musicians, for example, Colin Andrews, who oh, I went through these five music, uh, bands, and the one he had was the Trogs. And Reg Presley was the head of the Trogs, and this is a famous band in the 1960s in, in Great Britain or whatever. And they, and they, and Reg Presley had a number of UFO experiences. He actually had a TV show, a UFO TV show, wrote a UFO book, and he talked about the one thing that he basically believed, the experience that he had, were the aliens influenced, and that was the the song called uh, "Love Is All Around," mm. and it was it was influenced, it was writ- helped him write it, helped him direct it, helped him market the thing, and this is this song "Love Is All Around." So this is this concept of love that 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 he basically implied that the aliens had given him the song to put to the world. And it's a famous song, and you, when you hear it, everybody recognizes it from the 70s. So it's, it's, it's not just the alien message. It's this message of oneness. It's this message that the uh, to save the world. You get the, the big ones that had the ayahuasca experiences. These uh, Sting was one from police, and Sting did the 100 million albums or whatever he did, and the other one was Sam, Sammy Garcia, or Sammy... Um, Jerry Garcia. Jerry, Jerry Garcia from the Grateful Dead. He got the idea for the Grateful Dead, the song, the, the, um, 
the name from a DMT experiment. So they're into drugs, they're into DMT, they're into ayahuasca. And Sting tells a story, and, and Garcia talks a story, and both these guys are big-time environmentalist guys who are trying to save the Brazilian rainforest. And Sting tells a story. He's doing the ayahuasca experience in Brazil, and he suddenly interacts like with ayahuasca and with DMT you have this experience where you run into beings and a lot of times the beings are judging you it's not as Sting said this is not a recreational drug this is a drug that can really backfire when you get into this sort of experience where you're sort of being reprimanded and shown what you haven't done it's almost like a near-death experience where you have the judgment and all sorts of stuff so Sting is talking about this experience with ayahuasca and he describes the fact that he has an interaction with these uh, humanoid insect people the same as garcia said the same thing he had this interaction with these humanoid insect types and sting is told he's 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 brought to a, a, a superior uh, a female insect humanoid that wants to play chess with him and he forces and he writes this in his book this is his book this is not my story it's in his book and he tells a story where she's forcing this thing and she's playing very aggressively and he realizes he's got to play for his life and he loses the game and he realizes he suddenly becomes this great environmentalist and he, he starts the rainforest <laughs> foundation and so he, did he, he win or lose the chess game he lost, he lost the chess nobody game. but maybe you know we win because he lost Exactly. And that was the whole idea. Is now he right. started, and that led him to start the Rainforest Foundation, and he has saved 28 million acres of rainforest. Right. And Garcia was the same thing. He was fighting for the rainforest. And all these guys, they have these experiences where they suddenly, uh, Olivia Newton-John has this experience at 15 years old. She tells this story. Dramatic, dramatic sighting at 15 years old. No other things that we're able to tell what happened after that, but it almost looks like a contact experience. She feels the, the electricity coming off this thing and she's very, very close. She's out in the middle of nowhere and stuff like that. I mean, she's one of the biggest environmentalists there is through her whole life. Married this big environmentalist guy. So you see these crossovers of, of all these top guys and some of the bands, when you start looking at them, I mean, you look at John Lennon, John Lennon has this experience where he talks about it on his album. He talks about he saw a UFO and he puts it on the, the notes of the, of the album. He talks about it publicly on tape. He describes what happened. He said, I was so close to getting with a brick. There's a second story, which is kind of questionable about the aliens coming to the door. This told by Yuri Geller, him being given this object, uh, and then, so you you look at him. There's 600 million albums, and he, of course, his thing was uh, love, not war. And he had the big love in with him and Yoko Ono in Montreal, where they're in bed for you know and the cameras are there, and they're in bed for three weeks or whatever it was, and to stop the the war. So you have these sort of things where you you look at are the aliens influencing these environmental movements, these uh, anti-war movements, all this kind of stuff. They're influencing these these these. These people who are the heroes of the generation that's getting the new ideas. And that's how I think it's being done. That's, again, that's why you abduct very young children. You don't, it's like Hopkins says, if you're 18 years old, you've never been abducted, don't worry about it. They're not going to take you. They take <laughs> you very young. They, they want you to start at the very beginning. That's how they influence. And that's how consciousness gets risen to the next level is by taking the young children and putting this stuff in, into them. And then they develop it, and it's a gradual process. You take enough generations where you get the new ideas into the young people, and the old ideas die away, and eventually we're going to hit critical mass, and everybody's going to understand what's going on. Well, you know, what's really interesting about what you're saying about, especially John Anderson, is when I was 12, that was my very first vinyl album purchase was Yes. It was their album Relayer. 
Yeah. Which is a very spacey, very, uh, orchestrated. There's three songs on the album. Okay. So there's like one side is, is one whole song. Now my parents listen to the Beatles and, you know, uh, Engelbert Humperdinck and, and yeah. Len Campbell. And I hear this album and I am, I literally almost dropped to the floor. It's like, what is this music? And I listened to this over and over, and there was just something about the music itself. I had no idea what they were singing. It was just all so spacey. I mean, very, very trippy stuff. But upon doing this research with you, looking into the music, I actually looked at the lyrics of of that album, and I thought, okay, this is absolutely bizarre because, you know, being so young, being it's almost like loving Mozart when you're five. You know, it's just something resonated with me. And the message was very clear. And obviously he is an experiencer and an environmentalist. And, and so maybe, maybe the actual music will resonate with experiencers. Maybe, maybe they even choose the chords. Who knows? For a certain reason, you know, um, to speak musically to the ones who have been called to listen to their messages lyrically or what they're doing environmentally. Yeah. Uh, A lot of that. And that's the next step I guess I'll have to take once I. Cal- calculated um, which songs are involved, which bands is this idea, and Colin Andrews gets into this, is it may not just be the music, it's the beat mm-hmm. it's the uh, it's the uh, the influence of the song um, or, the, kind- or the energy of the music the vibration yeah. of the yeah. music yeah, like Colin Andrews describes the uh, the emotion is the carrier that unless you, ha- that if you are extremely emotioned about something mm-hmm. whatever it is that when you're given a message at the same time, it, it, it gets through rather than you being sort of uh, nonchalant or whatever, that that's the carrier wave that, that helps move the, the message through. So it, that's why I say if it's alien, it's going to be very deep, very complex, multi-leveled, and it's not just music, it's beat, it's all this sort of stuff. Or there's uh, w- one of the guys that was interviewed, and they actually offered me an interview to interview this guy. Is uh, I think his name is DeBars. He was a friend mm. of, uh, of Led Zeppelin. Michael DeBars. Yeah, uh, as a, yeah, it could be Michael, but uh, he talks about the fact that anything that he created that became a top hit was written in under five minutes. Mm. And then you start getting to this thing about downloads. Where mm-hmm. You talk about, and I talk about this in my lecture about how much stuff was downloaded. And I, where we're the the classic one was the uh, Paul McCartney's "Yesterday," the song "Yesterday" came in a dream. Paul McCartney said he woke up, the whole thing was there. He said there was a piano there. He knew this chord, this chord, this chord, boom, boom, boom. And he, he right away, he said it came in a dream. And this was one of the biggest songs ever in the history of music. The other one is is a song which um, came, which is called American Woman. I don't know if you remember this. Oh. This is a band, a band that came out of my city. And um, uh, I started checking this because when I realized it was the lead singer, then I said, well, the Guess Who was the biggest band that ever came out of my city uh, <laughs> in 1969. When they when they went big, they outsold the Beatles in Canada, and in 1969 they sold more records than all records that have been sold in Canada up to that point. They were a big name, so they put out this American Woman, and he tells the story. So I start I start looking at him, and I said, "Well, I wonder if he's an experience. I wonder if he's got some stories, whatever." And I I come across two things. I come across him on a Facebook page, doing this rant about how the aliens think we look stupid and all this sort of stuff. And then he starts defending Whitley Strieber. Now, on a Facebook page, who's going to know who Whitley Strieber is? And he's defending Whitley Strieber. This guy is being 
tortured and you know like people are not treating him right and then he said i know exactly how he feels and i saw that and went wow i mean wow. here uh, nobody except for me would know what this means eh? right and, and then the other thing was this american woman he tells this download story about american woman he said he's behind stage this is 1968 this is when cassette tape recorders came up before you had to have the big reel-to-reel the big machine you had to drag it around now you had this little cassette tape recorder you could hold in your hand and he said they're there and they're between sets and he says you can hear the band the band's starting to jam and they're just making noise whatever and he realizes he tells a guy i gotta be on stage they're starting to play and he goes running up on stage and he starts singing american woman he sings it and then he said they they, they went to the set or whatever and didn't realize he'd sung it didn't realize what had happened they see the kid has got the tape recorder in the ba- in the in the audience. They realize he's going to bootleg the the concert. So they go and they grab the kid and they take the tape recorder off him and they take the tape. And it's at the end of the performance after everybody's left. They listen to the tape and they go, "What the heck's this thing? What were you singing here?" And <laughs> they, he was singing American Woman and nobody remembered singing it. And he called it a he called it a conscious uh, a subconscious download. The the the, the music gods. We're looking down on us. So you get these things where people right. are getting these sort of downloads, and it may not just be all alien. It may be all sorts of spiritual right, realms exactly. or whatever, right. or the or the whole idea of of I in my lecture I talk about downloads. I go through five Nobel prizes that were downloads that people mm-hmm. got in, in dreams. The insulin, the DNA molecule, the uh, structure of the atomic uh, particle, all these things that won Nobel prizes came in dreams that people are getting these downloads and it comes down to this whole thing it's not random it's not us particles bouncing into each other that the life is all planned that it's all sort of you know you have free will but it's a lot of this is 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 plans coming through and we're like actors on a stage and that, that we're getting help from up above and even the one i did i did and i put it on the on the internet now i i talked about two i talked about one of the top neurology um Researchers in the United States uh, has, is a contactee and has stated that she believes that a lot of – she was given a lot of help on her research. And the other one is a, a medical thing. I, I posted it. I didn't get into detail as to who it was, but it has come forward now. Uh, this is um, uh, an, a, a way to encapsulate uh, an AIDS virus and uh, a, a salve that's been created, and this – is no ifs, ands, or buts. This is an alien download. This is not, he thinks maybe, it's like he tells me the story, what happened, when the sighting took place, exactly all the experiences and stuff like that. So this is very clear that we are we are getting help. And that's why it's so critical to deal with contactees because a lot of contactees are running around and they have these inventions, they have these messages, mm-hmm, they have all, mm-hmm. and the thing is to get a hold of all these people and figure out right. what what were you told, how did it how did it work, ask them the question, did you agree to this, run it back, Contact these are the most important people in the world, and we're, and we're just, we're just sort of ignoring them. We're not. There's nobody really cataloging their stuff, putting their stuff together. These people have the answer not only to the UFO problem, but to environmental problems, to the world, to how the world works, how the universe works, what is reality. These people are being helped. They're being downloaded with this stuff, and they're extremely important people. And a lot of the the, the people are the musicians. There's just it's astounding. I easily think I'll come up with a hundred <laughs> bands that have been abducted and these are major bands these are 11 million plus these are not uh, my brother-in-law who played at the bar last Saturday night these are and it major. might be though <laughs> What's it? it might be a guy that plays at a bar you know what I'm yeah. saying you just don't yeah. know 
you're getting these things. And I, I even look at, I, I sort of describe, I mean, the aliens, are you even learn this, this idea that it's not just rock music or country and Western music. It's everything. They, they're going across the board. They, they're not prejudiced. And even the, the, the one that's called the nastiest band in America, which was this, uh, insane, insane clown, clown posse. posse. Right. When, when you listen to their music, you go, holy That's shit. I mean, it's, it's hard. It's hard to listen. <laughs> it's really hard. But, but if you go to this, you go and Google search them and listen to their song called Miracle, you go like, wow, the aliens brought a beauty there. It right, is the right. alien message. It's got flying saucers in it. It is the act, the message that I'm putting well, out. Doesn't that, that make per- perfect sense to you? I mean, obviously sure. they're going to have to appeal to the masses, so they need yeah. to. Sure. You know, obviously. Because yeah, they've sold 11 million albums and right. the FBI said that their audience was, was gangs. So right. would, the, would, would you want to raise exactly. the consciousness of gangs? Absolutely. Exactly. It's going across the board and it's, it's very intricate and uh, we're just starting to get through to this and I've seen, Maybe one other person who sort of hinted at this, or Michael Luckman wrote the book. It's called um, Alien Rock, and he wrote. And a lot of these stories, he, he goes through all these bands and the, the Beatles and Elvis Presley and all these people and their interest in UFOs and all this sort of stuff. And he sort of concludes, well, isn't this kind of interesting how all these people are interested in UFOs? And I'm going, well, no, maybe it's the other way around. Maybe the the aliens are interested in the rock guys. So I'm taking it from a different perspective. But uh, Alien Rock does go through, and he goes through a couple hundred bands there and, and different stuff. And you even get the connections, the weird connections to movies. Um, right. For example, uh, Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Most people wouldn't know that Jerry Garcia, who had the, the alien experience with the uh, ayahuasca, was uh, in Close Encounters of the Third Kind. He's in the India scene. There's a picture of him running around in the India scene. He was a, an extra there. Um, if you take a look at... Um, uh, uh, David Bowie. David Bowie played in this, The Man That Fell to Earth. And uh, in The yeah. Hunger, which was and written in the by, by Willie Strieber, actually. Which, and, and this is before, this is 1983, the movie came out. Right. Willie Strieber didn't know he was an abductee until 1986. So right. here you have this, exactly. uh, uh, Bowie, who's actually sort of indicated he may be from another planet. Uh, playing this, uh, Whitley Strieber thing, and you get these synchronicities, or Michael Jackson, the, the Grammy Award that he's most proud of is he wrote, he read the book, E.T. He's, he did the, the audio book for E.T. and he said it was, he was the, the, the most, uh, the best Grammy he'd won. He felt an association to E.T. He figured he was like E.T. He, he missed E.T. He met him on a set or whatever they're doing something <laughs> and he messed missed him the next day oh and this is this, this great connection so you, you get these sort of synchronicities where suddenly they're appearing in 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 these movies mm. and it's just very bizarre how it's all sort of fits together and then you come down to you know are the movies being influenced i think everybody's always admitted that that the of movies course. are being influenced by by whoever and that's all it comes down to so when i say it really doesn't matter what they're saying or uh, in movies or articles. A lot of people get upset, like this this experience I had today with this group where everybody's upset about the, the laughter curtain. People are laughing at us. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how many bad movies there are. It doesn't matter how many bad articles they write, what they say about you. As long as they spell your name right, just keep talking, talking, because <laughs> consciousness is awareness. All it is, is awareness. Talk about it, talk about it. It's like the crop circles. You see the crop circles, you don't know if it's alien. you just like, wow, maybe this is alien. People are thinking about it, they're talking about it. And the, and the more and more and more you talk about it, right. the more people right. become aware of it. And it's like every other social and political movement. 
the awareness built. They built the build. David Bowie does the gay thing. And then suddenly you get to the point where everybody's talking about it. And in the end, everybody's smart enough to know what's right and what's wrong. And you hit this critical mass and everybody goes, well, man, this is, this is a bad idea. If, we shouldn't have slaves. This is a bad idea. And everybody just makes the move. And right. then everybody thinks, oh, why would I ever think such a stupid thing? That's how consciousness changes. It's not something that happens overnight right. or somebody makes an announcement. It's this gradual, it's like filling a bathtub with water, one drop at right. a time, one drop at a time, and eventually it overflows. That's that's what's happening. Well, there's something to be said about uh, the power of positive energy and um, pure intent, you know, to in the masses if you give something enough positive energy uh most things will manifest you know look at yeah. illnesses the power of prayer you know there we we really i think that's a huge message especially with um in the music that we're talking about um a lot of it's very positive the oneness and helping the planet um you know who cares where it came from just listen to the message yeah yeah and then when, once this sort of gets a little more popular then people will start looking because I know a lot of them. I mean, you look at the the you realize it after you've been singing this song for years. You mm-hmm. didn't even know what you're singing. Mm-hmm. And, and a lot of these, you you look at these lyrics like this this latest one with um with um that that's really created a fuss is this uh, Katy Perry, uh, and you followed that whole story where Katy yeah. Perry does the ET song, and uh, in the video in the the video she kisses this girl, and then her father's uh, this big minister, her father and mother ministers, and they're all upset and they call her the de- the the devil child. And uh, they're preaching against her because she kissed this girl on the video. And now this is like a big story. And, and then she now goes public and says uh, she's into UFOs. And she's done this E.T. song that everybody's been singing. It was number one. She's got three on the top 40 right now. Highly influential. And now she says, you know, I think I may talk to Obama about this. You know, I think I won Wisconsin for him last last election. And I'm going to talk to Obama. So you get you get this thing. Mm. It, and all it is is this this constant talk, 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 talk. And it go, builds, builds, builds. And pretty soon everybody, it's like you talk to the young kids about UFOs and aliens. And they go, well, what's the big deal? I mean, like, you know, it's... Uh, Probably, yeah, sure, probably, you know, the, conscious, <laughs> the consciousness is almost there already. Yeah. Same as when I, when I first started, I did near-death studies in the 1970s. I remember then it was a wacko idea. But if you say now, today, if somebody had a near-death experience and somebody came or they had this experience, people would say, yeah, I believe that. They may have a different interpretation of what's going on. But I don't think you, I think you'd be a little bit crazy if you said, no, nah, I don't believe anybody's having these experiences where they, uh, you know, they leave their body and go to see the light and all this or something. If people, basically, that is almost a done deal now no i agree and and i think i have two friends that actually had near-death experiences where they were both in comas and one of them was my best friend and i am telling you i almost feel like she brought something back with her because she could take any situation and it was she made everything okay it's like she was an angel i can't even explain it now but for you to understand you'd have to know her as a person but she was just this light she was the power of positivity. So, and, and, you know, she wouldn't even remember. She didn't remember what happened. Uh-huh. Um, but her son was the one who brought her back because she had a five-year-old son at the time. Yeah. And because of him, she decided, or maybe she made the agreement to come back, what have you. But from then on, she just didn't take life so seriously, you know, and, and, and try and, and I don't know, be the most popular one or, you know, there's no competition. Yeah. There's no fear. I mean, there's something to be said about this music that we need to listen to, the positivity in it as well. And, you know, who needs war? Who needs hate? 
You know, it's just ridiculous. Yeah, it, that's what's coming across. You get the same sort of messages that people who uh, have had the, the contact experience, people who have the near-death experience, their life changes. Everything, uh, their attitudes change as, as, as the way it works. And that that's the whole thing is that there's these upper levels that are that are influencing us, helping us. You get the near-death experience, you're met, you're given information, you're given things that the ordinary person doesn't have. So we're getting this help. And you look at how much is influenced. I, I go even go into the presidential stuff where I look at um, the whole thing about if you see a UFO, is it even a UFO? Maybe it's not even a UFO. Maybe it's just a projection. It's a screen image. They just want you to see it. That's why some people see it and some people don't. You can be standing beside somebody and they don't see it. Because it's a screen image. And then you look at the, the sightings and you look at Jimmy Carter. Jimmy Carter saw a UFO. So if that's the theory you want to work, maybe they knew Jimmy Carter would be president. If they can look in the past and the future, mm-hmm. they knew he'd be president. And they, they, they wanted him to see a UFO because they wanted the, uh, the UFO story to come out. And if you look at what Jimmy Carter did, he did a tremendous amount. People didn't think he did, but he actually did a, a two studies that were through the Congressional Research Service. He, uh, sent his, uh, press secretary to the FBI. Suddenly the FBI started uh, getting um, newspaper clippings. He had this uh, Stanford Research Institute uh, study that was killed by the, the Defense Department. Over half of all the documents that have been declassified about UFOs were declassified in the four years of the Carter administration. So he did an awful lot. Maybe that's what this whole sighting was about, to motivate him to do this stuff, to move this issue just a bit put another couple drops in the in the bathtub, the same as Ronald Reagan. Ronald Reagan had two sightings, and the second one is, is a critical sighting. This is the story. The first one, he sees it in the plane, tells the pilot to chase it, tells the Wall Street Journal, tells that story. The second one is the story that he tells to a number of people. He's at a cocktail party. He's coming from Sacramento down the Coast Highway. There's a cocktail party in Los Angeles, and there's a number of people who tell the story. There's Steve Allen, who's a, a, a skeptic who said, yes, he was there. Ronald Reagan and Nancy came in. They were all excited. They'd seen this UFO on the on the highway, and they were talking about it. They came in late. Lucille Ball talks about it in her autobiography. She says, yes, he was all excited. He was talking about this, and she said, I always wondered if people had known that Reagan had seen this UFO, whether people would have voted for him. Mm-hmm. Then last year, there was an article, and I checked through Shirley MacLaine to get this confirmed. Did Shirley MacLaine say this, or is this uh, just a misquote? Is that a, a tabloid paper in Great Britain where she said she talked to Lucille Ball, and Lucille Ball told her, yes, the story about Reagan and Nancy coming in, but the fact that the that Reagan had actually interacted with an alien, that the craft had landed, and that he had a telepathic interaction with the alien, and the alien had told him to run for president. If that story is true, coming through uh, Lucille Ball, then it all changes the whole thing, because Reagan was the big thing. He wanted nuclear weapons stopped. And the early, this is another thing that changed, the early contactees don't talk about the environment. The early contactees in the 50s and 60s all talked about nuclear weapons. Right. They didn't talk about the environment. The message has changed. Then Ronald Reagan, his whole idea, he even, most people ignore this, in the Memcons, the Memorandum of Conversations, in the Reagan Library, they talk about the meetings between him and Gorbachev, and he talks to Gorbachev and says, we lived another life together, you and I, and it is our job now to get rid of nuclear weapons. He talked about reincarnation to Gorbachev. Wow. That was his understanding, that his job was to end nuclear weapons, to get rid of nuclear weapons in the world. So here's Reagan that this may have been the influence. The aliens wanted the, the nuclear weapons. They influenced Reagan. Reagan comes out and does a huge amount 
to end the nuclear weapons arms race. And so you can see, you start looking at how much are the aliens actually influencing our culture and what's actually going on. We think it's random, and really not much is random. It's all sort of things that are happening by plan. Wow. Well, that makes perfect sense. Because if we chose this life before we came here, then we're definitely on the right path. And everything is happening the way that it should. And every, you know, we are a society of instant gratification everybody wants the answer now yeah you know but yeah. that's not the way it's supposed to work and so yeah. i think baby steps that little you know breadcrumbs are being laid out the way that they should yeah and for us to have disclosure when it's time yeah. when what do you think about um what's going to happen i mean why do you think this is all happening um, I think it's just uh, moving us to the to the next level. I, I don't think there's any intention. Um, the government can't release it because of the classified military stuff, um, but they're sort of giving us the idea of what's going on. The aliens, it's this idea that um, uh, they realize there's many lifetimes and many eons to come that you really don't need the lessons. It's it's all got to do with lessons. So they're they're not disclosing either. They're just going through this process of raising the consciousness of the world to try to save the world because we're at the position where we're about to put the world off a cliff. And unless we stop and, and uh, you know, as David Bohm says, and stop act, acting like a bunch of, um, um, you know, uh, locusts, um, we're going to put it off because basically the way we have it is we think that, you know, disclosure should bring us, even Stephen Greer has talked about this. Well, you know, we're going to have increased growth and everything's going to be fine or whatever. And it's like, that's the last thing we want is increased growth. I mean, we're going to teach the locusts to strip the, the leaves twice as fast. I mean, <laughs> that's the last thing we need. We're running out of resources. We have to, we have to do this thing that Bohm says. We've got to reverse this, this idea that we need more. And people say, well, no, they, they agree with this. They, they don't want more. But then I say, well, do you send your kids to school? Well, yeah, I send my kids to school. And you, you, you encourage your kid, don't be a bum. Go be a doctor. Go be a lawyer. Because we want our kids to have more. We want them to have a bigger house, exactly. more cars. And, and we're encouraging this whole thing that more is better. Mm. And, and that's the thing that, we, that the aliens, I think, are trying to turn around is this is the thing that's going to st- set us off the cliff Is is if you have, like, for example, if you have free energy and you have the aliens give us this thing on a silver platter, I mean, in China, you have like an 8% growth rate. If the growth rate doubles to 16% in China, I mean, their their economy will tri- will double in about four years. I mean, that, and every four years, it'll double. I mean, they're using up all the resources right now. Can you imagine if suddenly the world uh, you know, right. economy doubled? Right. I mean, there would be just like, you know... You know, amazing chaos. This is, this is what the problem is, is to try to stop this, this growth. But I still think the aliens sort of have it under control. I mean, we had the nuclear weapon message and it, it sort of calmed down. And I think the environment thing through music, through all these influences, the environment, now we have a situation where you cannot do anything unless you do an environmental study that you cannot just dump stuff into the atmosphere. You cannot just smoke in somebody's house. You cannot, I mean, there's all these things. The attitude is changing very, very fast. The problem is, can we do it fast enough to save the society? I don't know. Well, you know (laughs) what? I think we're going to find out. (laughs) Yeah, we have, and it doesn't really matter. Like somebody, I mean, there was one of the people that was with John Mack. Uh, One of his people sort of got upset about me, you know, like, we, you know, this may go. And I said, well, it really doesn't matter. I mean, if we go off the cliff, so what? 
Right. You know, you got many lives. We do it again someplace else. I mean, you That's learn your lesson. You don't learn your lesson. Eventually, you're going to learn your lessons. You just keep coming back until you. you do it right. That's how it works. I mean, you don't have to solve it this time around. I mean, it'd be good. But it still comes down to you doing something with what you've got. Knowledge not used is sin. That is so true. And we need to pay attention. And we need to learn to listen to what we're doing because everybody here, um, we're all in, in this thing together. You know, we all have something that we can do to contribute to the good of our life and, and our families and, and the world. Exactly. You know, and, and it's our choice and it's whether or not we choose to make that choice is what I think is very important. Yeah. And I think you and I understand and we appreciate what we've got. So, Absolutely. I mean, that, that's good. So. Amen. Grant, I want to say thank you so much for joining me this evening. It's been really a wonderful, enlightening experience talking to you. Wow. And likewise, and I'm uh, glad that we linked up and did the music thing. Me too. We'll stay in touch and absolutely. We'll solve some more music stuff down the road. You think so? <laughs> it's, a, it's a big story. It's yeah, it is. Bigger, bigger every it day. It sure is. So, um, what's going on with uh, with Grant Cameron these days? Are you doing any lectures? Are you involved uh, in any projects that we need to know about? Um, yeah, I'm. I do this. That's all I do. Twenty four hours a day. Um, <laughs> I, I just gave a lecture in Phoenix, Arizona. I'll be giving a lecture in Tucson. On February the 21st, I think, I'm giving a lecture in Salt Lake City on February the 20, no, 21st in Salt Lake City, 18th in, in, in Tucson. I'm giving a lecture in Boulder, Colorado. That's a con- I call it Consciousness Colorado. I mean, there's just of course. such a <laughs> such a heightened consciousness there. You talk about environment and consciousness and classes and people going and learning about uh, you know the the non-physical world. It's just unbelievable. I'll be lecturing there on uh, March the first, and I have a second book that's coming out. But I actually sort of got lucky. The book that I tried to get published in the very beginning when it started. And the woman told me, uh, you may believe in this kind of stuff, count me on the unbelievers, uh, just about to do an option for a movie, uh, oh, that's wow. gonna, that's gonna include that. So the book will come out with the movie. They've actually, uh, got a movie that's going to be done, um, on the Rama group. I don't know if you're familiar with the yes. Rama group. And what happened was the Canadians, they couldn't finance it in Canada. Uh, because it's a South, uh, South African story. So what they're going to do is they're going to take my story of this investigation along the Canadian border in 1975, and then the reporter who's working on that suddenly discovers the Rama group. So you have this big movie coming out, and it's going to be the alien message. It's going to be the message, the important message. And the other movie that's coming out that ties into that is this whole story about Chris Bledsoe, who if you haven't interviewed, you should interview this guy. I mean, this whole movie deal that Warner Brothers is about to do that talks about his abduction experience and the message that he gets for the world that's given to him by the the, the Shining Lady and the aliens about the environment and all this sort of stuff that's coming out by Warner Brothers and uh, the two writers uh, that wrote the script, uh, The Conjuring, which did $320 million worth of business, uh, said that this will, this movie will be bigger than, uh, The Passion of the Christ, which did 620 million. And it is going to include the experiencer message. It's not an alien shoot 'em out movie. So, uh, things are looking up, I think. Well, you know, I think that things are changing when it comes to the movies and, and also in the music industry, when you look at a lot of the videos, uh, from these, these, uh, songs from these musicians are changing yeah. as well because they definitely allude to, 
an alien message. And one thing we did not talk about tonight, and that is the uh, wake me up video um, from Avicii. Wow. And uh, just definitely there's something going on there. They're trying to get this message out any way they can. So thank all of you who are on the same page as we are. We really appreciate it. Um, if you would like to visit Grant Cameron's website, it is presidentialufo.com or visit his blog at whitehouseufo.blogspot.com. Grant Cameron, always a pleasure. And uh, thank you again for being here tonight at Random Alien Brain Droppings. And we hope to talk to you soon. Thank you. Take care.